Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. In 2017, the military gathered a small group of scientists to try and bring the Quantum Leap time travel program back online. Five years later, believing it was the only way to save his fiancée's life, Dr. Ben Song risked everything when he entered the accelerator to travel back in time. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. Ben believed he would only need to complete 18 leaps before he could return to the place and people he calls home. But something went wrong. Ben! No! And for reasons unknown, Ben did not leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 153, A Kind of Magic. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Well? Uh, <laughs> William and Elizabeth sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Hi, guys. Come on. Don't want to be late for the funeral. Are they angry with me? Uh, I didn't do it. I swear. Do what? Oh, what? What's wrong? Well, this says that Ben's in 1692. That's the furthest back he's ever leaped. Mm-hmm. Where is he? A place called Middletown, Massachusetts. I've never heard of it. Middletown? Can you pull the town records? Well, considering it's 17th century, there aren't really substantial records. They're saying I had something to do with Josiah's death. You didn't, right? Elizabeth, I loved Josiah. You don't seriously think that? No, no, no. Of course not. Where am I? It's 1692. What? I know there. there's not exactly a lot of um, historical records to help you out with this one, but there is a lot of hot goss flying around this church. So what are they saying? Oh, your name is Elizabeth. You are the servant girl to Bridget Smith, who I believe you, you two already met. And everyone here calls her Goody. Goody. It's short for good wife, which is, uh, it's, it's ironic because we are right around funeral service. Wow. People are scared. So they're looking for someone to blame for all the bad things that have been happening Ask around yourself. town. And they're blaming Goody. Well, they're saying that she's a... What? Ask yourselves if he is hiding among us in this church today. That is to say, the devil. Oh, crap. Ziggy is saying that these people burn Goody at the stake. Oh, no. Goody came to me in a dream and told me she's a witch. Her servant girl was there, too. Okay, ho- hold on. Do you smell sulfur? I smell sulfur. Taste the smell of the devil. We shall hold the trial, then, to decide their fate. Now it looks like both you and Goody are going to die. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. And I'm Matt Dale. No, you're a witch. You're a witch, witch, witch. I said the wrong thing. So easy to be persecuted as a witch. Isn't it, though? It's just, it's ridiculously easy. Well, well, when you say something like, Those girls are no more witches than I am. I mean, you're asking for trouble, really. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be accused of being witches just for reviewing this episode, maybe. I know. That's what I'm worried about. Don't tell them where you live, Chris. <laughs> I'm afraid to say this, but today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 7 of Quantum Leap, A Kind of Magic. And uh, yeah, this is the one where Ben goes back to sort of the Salem Witch Trials, kind of? Salem Witch Trial adjacent? 
Yeah, that's close enough, I think. I like the fact that it's not. It gives some room for, where's this going to go? So, yeah, Salem Witch Trial-ish, I think, gives a lot more freedom than actual Salem Witch Trials. One might say a little too much freedom, but Mm. that's part of the bigger discussion. Uh, Before we get started, though, Matt, why don't you tell us about some of the interviews we have? Because, as usual, lining them up. Yeah, we've we've got some great ones uh, today. So we will be speaking later to Margarita Matthews, the episode's writer, which is such a cool interview. I've, I've been trying to set up since she wrote Judgment Day, and uh, it's just it's been a real challenge aligning calendars. It's finally happened. The stars have aligned. It's witchcraft, but it happened. <laughs> Did you set up your seance circle of all the candles in your office, or that was what it came down to ultimately? Gotcha. Uh, but hey. I- I'm not going to argue. It worked. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, it, it worked. Actually, it worked a lot better than you anticipated because we have another interview as well. Right. Double interview time because we've also got Amanda Jaros, who um, was such an exciting get because she's such an important part of the episode and what, what really brought it to life for me. I don't want to say too much because I know we're, we're saving that for the, the show review, but I love the character. I'm, I'm so glad she could spare some time to talk to us. And uh, we've got a great interview that uh, that you and Albie ran with her. Yeah, I was just so pleased this week to be able to be part of not one, but two interviews that we have for the show, because it was amazing talking to Margarita with you. Mm-hmm. It was amazing talking to Amanda with Albie. And uh, once again, we just keep getting, I think, both sides of the equation here, the people that are making the episodes that we love and the people that are performing in the episodes that we love. And right. it's just been a great season for getting both of those, I'm just glad that the the actor strike and the writer strike and everything is over and we can get back to the business of making good podcasts for all of the listeners. Um, and uh, just in case you're out there thinking, well, that's enough. Well, think again because we have two more interviews that will appear exclusively on the Quantum Leap podcast after show and our YouTube channel. Albie and I also got to talk to Madeline Horcher, who played Bridget in the episode, and she was a freaking blast. She was the main one, the main witch, the main person accused of being a witch with the bonnet on the whole episode. And she was like so much fun. She was she was the greatest. So you for sure want to check that out. And then Albie had the distinct pleasure of speaking to Jet Wilder who played one of the trio of those mean girls screaming, witch, witch, you're a witch. Uh, So she was accusing everyone of witchcraft. Albie is accusing her of being delightful. He's saying that he had a ball, so you want to hear that as well. Hey, look, the the magic just never ends here on the Quantum Leap podcast. A couple of great guest appearances in the episode, a couple more great interviews. Um, So many that we couldn't just squeeze them all into one podcast. So definitely head over to YouTube and, and check those out. There was, um, you know, a lot going on in this episode. I'm really curious to know about your initial impressions on this one, because from everything that I've been seeing that you've been alluding to on our group chats, even though I haven't asked you about it directly, I think that you and I have some different feelings about this episode. So uh, have at it, sir. I think maybe we do. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's it's a lot of fun. It's... If I'm going to be a little cautious or critical in my thinking it feels like a season one episode but it feels like one of the better season one episodes uh, it definitely I, I was smiling right the way through it it was a lot of frivolous fun 
some of it doesn't stand up to to too much um it, too much investigation but uh, overall i really enjoyed it and honestly probably my favorite of margarita's three scripts uh, she she wrote the halloween episode last year and then the season finale uh, judgment day and now this one and i think this this may well be my favorite of the three Wow. All right. So that's pretty high praise indeed, because I really enjoyed Oh Ye of Little Faith. And Judgment Day was, you know, it, it did what it had to do. Let's put it that way. Margarita mm. had a, a Herculean task ahead of her, yes. and I think she yeah, carried yeah, it yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got to say, I think that I'm coming at this um, maybe not, not so much down, but I feel like this episode has more issues than any episode that we've seen this season so far. And I think part of that might be due to the episode. Part of that might be due to my expectations. So do you mind if I go on just a, a little bit of a soliloquy about Please how do. I've been coming to this episode? Yeah. Um, I well, first of all, just for initial impressions, I I kind of feel like this was a script that was written maybe just as the strike was looming, and maybe it's a first draft or an initial draft because I feel like there are some writing issues here. I think the first act kind of feels rushed and a little bit haphazard. I think we needed to establish the setting more. It was almost like, like I said, like a, a first draft that sort of expressed the main ideas that she wanted to get through or to put out there, and then um. It, it still needed to be a little bit honed for more character and nuanced stuff. Anyway, that's that's how I felt. And I'll tell you why. Before seeing this episode, I had somewhat of like a, a blitz of Salem information uh, that mm. was, you know, just I, I stumbled upon um, randomly. And then I also sought some out because I listened to a podcast called Our Fake History. And the host there, about uh, two months ago, started releasing a series of episodes entitled What Bewitched Salem. And as a result, um, it's over three hours worth of information on sort of the social political background that was going on at the time of the witch trials. Maybe some of the stuff that was going on that contributed to the outbreak of like the mass hysteria and the persecution. And it gave a lot of information about like even the factions within the town, because there was an old Salem, there was a new Salem, and it was the farming community sort of versus the more city community that was more aligned with Boston. It was a fascinating podcast. I recommend mm. anybody to listen to Our Fake History. Um, Sebastian Major does an incredible job on um, so many different topics, and he sort of explodes historical myths. And so I had that going for me. So I already had a lot of the facts and figures of the historical Salem floating through my head. And then about Two weeks ago, there is a theater out in Sag Harbor here on Long Island, and they were doing a version of The Crucible. And I said, well, oh my God. <laughs> so I just heard What Bewitched Salem, and now I have a 90-minute version of The Crucible right here, sort of in my backyard. I mean, it's kind of a drive, but why not? And then by the time I see a, a kind of magic, I'm just going to be all Salem all the time. It's going to be great. I'm going to be dry. And I'm going to know what this means and what that means. And and that was a really good uh, production of The Crucible. So I really enjoyed that. And then when I sat down to watch this, all of those problems emerged in that first act for me. It seemed like too little grounding in the historical facts. And that's where I say, okay, okay now is this a Chris problem? Did I come at it with these expectations because of the way I had steeped myself in it beforehand? I don't know. So my experience, uh, my my previous knowledge of the the Salem witch trials um, is quite extensive as well. It amounts to a, a twenty five minute episode of Back to the Future, the animated series. So as you can tell, I'm also an expert. Um, 
But how did Doc and Marty get out of that one? <laughs> <laughs> so no, I mean. I don't think that's a that's a Chris problem. It's more of a it's a map problem that I came to it from a position of blissful ignorance. If there are factual inaccuracies, I think it's important, especially when especially when a show like Quantum Leap decides to go back well outside our lifetime. There's an opportunity to be somewhat educational with its entertainment, and I like to think it is being. So I'm really interested to hear what was fudged or done incorrectly. It just wasn't something that I noticed while I was watching. But that, as I say, that that's down to my own ignorance. Please enlighten me. Well, I wouldn't say that anything was fudged or done incorrectly because they said it not in Salem, but in Middletown. So that gave Margarita the latitude to maybe pick and choose the elements that she wanted to, to tell the story that she needed to. Yes, I'd still, I'd hoped and assumed that it was true to what happened in Salem, except for giving that opportunity for the big speech at the end of, you know, make a decision about what kind of town you want to be, which obviously, if they were setting it in Salem, they couldn't do that. But I'd assumed everything leading up to that was probably fairly spot on. And I think for anyone watching that didn't know the full background, I think that would be a fair assumption. So yeah, I'm I'm a little disappointed to hear that. It's not going to stop my enjoyment of it another time round, but um, sounds like a missed opportunity to be educational. Sounds, I don't know. It, it, this this is an entertaining show. It shouldn't it shouldn't feel like it has to be educational, but it sh- I feel it should be historically accurate, even with um, even with that latitude that you've discussed. Well, it is historically accurate with broad strokes. They even mentioned something to the effect of they didn't burn witches in Salem, they hanged them. And that's the truth. Although I think for the purposes of drama, you want to have the pyre and burning the witch at the stake and all that stuff. So they even made a nod to the fact that this is not historically accurate so much. Oh, but we're in Middletown, see? And Margarita got the broad strokes right. I mean, what happened essentially was um, a combination of what they think might be like play acting and mass delusion that turned into a paranoia. Uh, it was some girls that were doing some kind of like European folk magic about who they were going to marry and this and that and the other thing. And then one of the girls started to like bark like a dog and not be able to sleep. And then this, this affliction, whatever it was spread to three other girls. And then from there, it sort of blossomed out into people accusing other people of dancing naked in the woods and being witches and being in league with Satan and writing your name in Satan's book. And that's where the mass hysteria comes in. And then actually the courtroom stuff, Again, this is just me basing it on something I heard a few weeks ago, so I might not even have all the details exactly correctly, but again, broad strokes. Mm. Once you were in the courtroom, it actually did go better for you to confess and repent, and then you would maybe not be hanged because you didn't admit to the fact that you're a witch. And obviously, if you don't admit to it, you must be guilty. So they got that part of it right, too. And um, the problem that came with that is that once you confessed and repented, you then would have to name the other people who forced you into doing this. And so then you can say, so-and-so came to me in a dream. So-and-so sent their spirit animal after Mm. me and tormented me at night. And it snowballed from there to the point where, you know, dozens and dozens of women were implicated because maybe someone had a personal grudge against them. It was that ridiculous. And once you were in court, a girl sitting in the gallery could say, she's she's tormenting me, and they would have like these fits. 
And that was taken as further evidence of your guilt. So it was it was just this ridiculous circus of accusation with no substantiation other than the fact that, well, they said it, so it must be true. And I think we did see quite a bit of that in here with the trio of girls that yeah. were screaming, witch, you're a witch, you're a witch. So yeah. that's oftentimes all it took. Some some of what you just said really it, it speaks to my point about um, the opportunity a show like this has to educate because uh, honestly, and I again I feel naive for saying this, but it's just not a period of history I've ever read up on much. Before watching this, I had that very classical view of as soon as you're accused of being a witch, uh, they do that drowning test, and if you floated, you were guilty, and if you sunk, well, you died, but at least you were innocent. I had no idea that it was possible to repent. But then that came with its own implications. So moments like that, I I loved, and I'm I'm intrigued to hear the uh, everything else that you've just explained about that. Yeah. So I mean, coming at it from that grounding, maybe that's why the first act to me seemed colored in. Okay, I have to balance what I'm expecting versus what Marguerite is trying to say, and I think that actually she does a good job of bringing out some themes that Quantum Leap is really mm. sort of it's right in the wheelhouse, right? Intolerance, the dangers of ignorance, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where, where to begin here. I guess if, if we start <laughs> with <laughs> with the first act, there's a lot going on. Do you want to start with the witch stuff? Do you want to start with the project stuff? How do you want to go? What well, One of the things I was immediately captured by is I knew, obviously we all knew going into this, this was going to be the witch trial episode. This is way further back than either series has done. And it does such a good job of grounding you in those opening moments with the four girls doing the he loves me, he loves me not stuff. And it just, it immediately took me into in a way that I wasn't expecting it to because I was thinking, oh, this is going to be ancient history and American history at that, that I'm not going to feel a connection to. And I, I love the fact that that's how we were brought into it. The whole opening and the way that it slowly goes from this is something familiar to now let's see all the people at work and the costumes and the freaking out about the black cat. It was very gentle in the way that it took us into the 17th century. And see, now that is exactly what I meant by me maybe coming at it with my own expectations instead of taking it for what it is, because I had a much easier time with the first act the second and third time I watched the episode, um, maybe because I knew what to expect, number one. But again, my expectations had been put aside. And I could appreciate the episode on its own merits. So it's good to hear that there was enough there for you to sort of bring you into the world because, as you said, we have not gone this far back in a leap before. And that is a risk. That is yeah. such a risk because at what point does Quantum Leap stop being Quantum Leap? I guess this is a bigger question, but is this too far back? And it's something they, they didn't even do in Leap Between the States, which I, I love Leap Between the States. Really good episode. But they slammed Sam into that scenario and didn't give the audience a chance to catch up. And we, we just, we had to feel our way around it. And that was fine. It was, it was shocking and it was there for the shock value. But this, I felt, took a different approach that was appropriate for me. Have they gone too far back? This is the thing. I, I, I felt Leap Between the States was really good as a one-off. We've now started to see, well, there's been, what, two pre-20th century leaps now. If this starts to become a once-a-season thing, 
mm, I don't know. I, I hope they keep it special, and I definitely hope they don't go further back than 1692. But I do remember saying something like that about Salvation. Oh, don't, don't go further back than that. And they did, and I enjoyed it. So who knows? As long as they don't go back to dinosaurs, we're all good. <laughs> who knows? You might enjoy that, too. We might have to make an impassioned plea to the dinosaurs about oh, how... Well, there's there's a 70% <laughs> chance this T-Rex is going to eat that thing, and <laughs> you've, you've got to try and stop it. it right, you have I, to save this this mammal from the <laughs> uh, from the asteroid strike so that uh, humanity is actually born, you know, or something yeah. like that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I I guess I have some issues with the overall question of them going back so far. Mm. And it could be because I feel like the more they go back, the further they go back, I sort of have a harder time buying into whatever premise they want to set forth. Because if Quantum Leap can be said to be anything it is a show that has always been progressive and trying to push that progressive envelope and it's it's almost like those sensibilities are a bad match for uh, the, the more antiquated the time period that ben finds himself in right so yeah. i mean i know that you want to make a statement about intolerance about the dangers of ignorance about maybe the danger of groupthink and, and crowds but at the same time like Ben's sensibilities are so, and I guess our modern sensibilities are so utterly alien to those times and places. I don't know that the people that he interacts with could realistically be pulled out of those ingrained social norms. And that's to me where it's almost like we're taking our sensibility and doing a bad pace job on top of an era that would not even begin to comprehend them, much less accept them in the end. Yes. So I, I I don't know. I mean, does this episode do an effective job of that? Somewhat. So it's not beyond the pale that I could buy it. But I think the further and further we go back, the more Ben seems like an anachronism, the less I can resonate with what's going on on screen because it's just too disparate. Yeah. and it And it starts to... Oh, I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man here, but it starts to go against what Quantum Leap is. And I'll say again, I really enjoyed this as an hour of TV, but as soon as you can't make that kind of connection, it ceases to be why Quantum Leap is what it is. We we go back within well our lifetime now a, a bit more, but um, we do that for a reason. And... As it goes further and further back, certainly even Salvation, but certainly this, it becomes a time travel show Mm. rather than a story about holding up a mirror to society, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that because I was still entertained by it. So does it matter that much? It's just something it's very different. But going back to the original question, I guess I it's not something that I want to see happen very often. Me neither, in the sense that, you know, everything I just said, even though I feel like if you're going to have a charismatic lead at the center of it, I think Ray can always make it work to some degree because he's got that charisma. Sam had the same ability 
in my eyes. And maybe it's just because I love Scott so much that, <laughs> okay, I, I'll buy it. You know, I'll buy that he's this six, seven guy with this giant beehive wig on, but he's part of a girl group because it's just, it's, it's Scott. <laughs> he can do anything. <laughs> so I guess yeah. I can buy that Ben is a servant girl in 1692 in the middle of a witch trial because it's Ben. I like Ben. <laughs> so it's got that going for it. But yeah, everything you said, it's again, it's that we've talked about this, uh, this season already, sort of that ineffable thing that makes quantum leap quantum leap so which is it yeah and where, where do we draw that line is there a line that they can't can they keep pushing that envelope i don't know i don't know i feel like this one came dangerously close though to again like you said just being another time travel show some interesting things though that sort of play off that theme that that i feel like once again the show is talking about issues of faith along with issues of science and I don't know that they manifested it very believably here, but it was definitely something that was spotlighted, especially with some of the stuff that they had Ian doing. And I, God, poor Mason. Ian, yes. I was waiting oh, for us to get to him. <laughs> Let's talk about Ian. Well, I mean, I, I guess there are two ways we can go here. I guess we're talking about the science and faith, but there are also problems that are inherent in the story from them being so far back. And it's just, it turns, you know what, before we go to the science and faith thing, let me, let me, let me backtrack. I'm going to backtrack, Matt. Everybody okay, listening, I'm going to backtrack. Yeah. Because I just think I won't be able to bring this up otherwise. So we have Ben in 16, whatever. There are no archives. There's nothing. Go to the library, get the to the library and find some ancient tomes in the middle of LA that can tell you a death list from Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. Sure, that's believable. Number one. So they got no information on anything that Ben is doing, where he is, who he is, what it's all about, because by default, they can't. There's no digital archive of it. Mm -hmm. So Ziggy can't tap into it. They can't load it in. They have to go and find it. Meanwhile, the second Ian gets there, they're sitting in the back of the church and they give Ben chapter and verse who Ben is, who everybody in town is, what's going on. And we're supposed to, because they say there's a lot of hot goss flying around this church, are, are, are we meant to believe that Ian got all of that information from eavesdropping on people just kibitzing in church? Uh, possibly. I, and not necessarily directly Ian. Ziggy could be listening to all those conversations and compiling it together in real time to say that this is the most interesting and important stuff. Uh, I like your headcanon on that. Yeah, it's a hole. I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not, that, that's, that's headcanon and it's a stretch. I'm not going to deny that. That wasn't something that I'd picked up on. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I that went over my head and I was just thinking, yeah, of course, that's Ian doing what the hologram always does, bringing information. But yes, where from? Where from indeed? Yeah, when, when they're making a whole big plot point out of the fact that you have to go and find archives in a library somehow and bring them back so that we know what's going on. And then the next scene, they're just, they're just saying everything that's going on. So that took me out of it as well. And I feel like the further we go back, again, you have that juxtaposition of, well, there's really no way they can know, but because of the way the show works, they sort of have to know. So let's just not look at that too closely. But as fans and nerds, it's just like, well, how how is that working? You know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I know that I wanted to go into the whole uh, science and faith and religion aspect and all that. But, yeah, I don't know when I would have been able to bring this up again. So no, that's fine. That was, that was a good point and something that I've missed as well. The science and faith thing is uh, I find it really fascinating theme when it's brought up in anything. 
This whole magic is just science we don't understand yet. It was bashed over the head one too many times, maybe in this episode. They did say that a few times, that specific phrase. But I do like it as a theme. I find that interesting. And not only does it bashes over the head with it, it then kind of extends to Ian and, and what Ian chooses to do, which which appears somewhat out of character. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. You think? Well, I'm trying to think. I because I, let's face it, we've only seen these characters for twenty odd episodes now. We're still getting to know them. We feel like we know them because they've been on TV for over a year. But it's we don't know Ian that well. Could we say for definite that Ian doesn't believe in an afterlife or the ability to contact spirits? I, I guess not. I guess it's on screen now as canon that they do believe that. Yes, yeah, so, and I don't think I don't right. think it contradicts anything that's come before. It just it's come I as disagree. a surprise. Go on, <laughs> I disagree wholeheartedly. What, where do you think it? Where do you think it's contradictory? All right. So in O Ye of Little Faith, there was no mention by Ian that I can recall that they believed in a supernatural thing, and that was the episode with the emergencies. Am I saying yes. that right? Yeah. And yeah, I was so embarrassed for Ian in that scene because it just seemed so out of place and ridiculous that the character would be wearing cat ears for no reason. Because everything back at the project is always so semi-serious. This is equally ridiculous to me that Ian would set up candles in the middle of the control room to do some kind of seance to talk to their great-great-grandmother. What's happening right now? A seance. Apparently, Anne has a great-great-great-grandmother who was accused of being a witch, so we're hoping she can point us in the right direction. Dorothy? Dorothy, can you hear us? I mean, what? I, 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 what? (laughs) I get, maybe it's supposed to be comic relief, kind of like the cat ears or whatever, but it just sticks out like a sore thumb to me. I'm trying to remember which episode it is now, and I I wish I could, but. Didn't we establish before that Ian had been setting up vision boards which had somehow helped Ben? Which episode was that that we found out that they'd been doing vision boards? I don't know. Can you explain to me what a vision board is? Maybe that's why it went over my head. I've never done one, so I'm (laughs) doing very, very light research. But it's a physical board, as I understand it, but... I hope our listeners will will write in if I've got this wrong. It's a it's a physical board where you you put things up like pictures and phrases and stuff like that of things that you want to happen. It's 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 a form of manifesting. So this whole thing like oh yes, the the universe will manifest what you put out into it, and a vision board is part of that. And Ian apparently is a believer in vision boards, and I I can remember the scene. I, I wish I could remember the episode. I can remember the scene where it's um, Jen and Addison are talking about it. We never actually see Ian talking about it, but Jen and Addison are talking about it, and Addison says, what, are you, you telling me I need to make a vision board? So they seem to be fully aware that Ian attempts to manifest good from the universe through vision boards. That is clearly not scientific. It, it's I- maybe a far cry from talking to the dead. But <laughs> Thank you. But it's if if we're imagining that Ian is purely hard science and this therefore is a contradiction on that, I would say that's wrong. I think we Ian's beliefs are maybe a little bit broader than we often think. 
Clearly. And I'm I'm just thinking of the Ian presented as the real crime junkie, the true crime podcast listener, the mm-hmm. person that seems to be steeped in figuring out puzzles and, and coding. And I- Ian is quickly becoming the owl of this series. Ian is whatever we need that week, whether they are a true crime junkie or is able to fly and land a plane successfully or speak to the dead. It's... It, it, <laughs> <laughs> week, week to week, we'll find out that Ian ran away from home and had a pet rat while they were at the circus. Or it, it's this is all going to start coming out. I swear, this is this is the plan for Ian. Right now, Ian is someone who believes in the afterlife. That's cool. Ian Wright, speaker to the dead. Okay, yeah. uh, I guess. It took me by surprise for a moment, but then I did stop and think, I, I can't claim this isn't out of character. This is this is just a new part of canon. And after that, I, I bought it very easily. I still don't buy it. I mean, I, I can see a vision board that's basically like a hang in there poster on steroids. But I mean, it, like <laughs> yes. you said, it is it is quite the leap from that to I'm going to have a seance in the middle of the control room of Project Quantum Leap because that's the most conductive location and atmosphere to have a seance to talk to the dead in the middle of a busy control room with 15 people walking in the back and Tom looking down from Magic's office saying, what the hell is Ian doing now? I mean, it's just, I'm sorry. The thing that bothered me more about it, if anything, is why have we not seen this before, given the fact that most of the people Ben interacts with are dead by now, even if they just died of old age? Ben interacts with lots of dead people. Their inputs could be very useful for a lot of previous leaps. <laughs> you are brilliant. Okay, we just head cannoned away to get the visitor back. Maybe it's not a waiting room. Maybe it's a waiting pentagram. <laughs> oh my goodness. So that's happening off screen in every episode. We, we've never seen it before, but Ian is having seances every week. <laughs> With the Leapy, maybe, but or, or with the Leapy's friends. <laughs> Whoever died in the original history, while well, you're a ghost, can you tell me what happened? <laughs> but it doesn't even have to be, like, this This could be 30 years after the Leap. Like, hey, you, you died five years ago, but Ben's currently 40 years in the past. Do you remember that time when that friend of yours started acting really weird and out of character? Um, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Uh... I'm happy with that headcanon. The power of Ian compels you. I love it. I love it. More seances. That's what I call for. Well, I mean, we are focusing on more of the over-the-top stuff that I think was clearly meant for comic relief, obviously. So yeah, I, for yeah, sure. I, I, we're, we're taking the piss out of it, I think, for some of the right reasons, but mainly to take the piss out of it because we're having fun. I did like so much of what we saw back at the project in terms of having that faith. And once again, Ernie Hudson just saunters in, (laughs) is in the episode for three and a half minutes, knocks it out of the park, drops the mic and walks away. (laughs) He was fantastic in this episode. And that's when the whole episode started to really, really gel for me effectively. It was that scene when he was talking to Addison about having seen his sponsor, and um, he brings up the thought of alchemy. 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 Hmm. Like magically turning metals into gold? Like turning a bad situation into a good one. You focus on the things you can change. Look, you don't have any control over what Ben decides to do, but you always have a say over who you're going to be. How much grace you choose to have for him. How much patience. How much love. 
When you realize the power you have over yourself, that's when you transmute a bad situation into gold, which in a way is a kind of magic. That scene right there, even though it's sort of that thing where, hey, the guy who's in the thing said the name of the thing that the guy is in, it still served to crystallize so many of the themes that were happening in this episode in such an effective way. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, again, a lot to like. And if you're going to play with these themes, okay, maybe you have that over the top Ian stuff, which I guess your mileage may vary. Uh, I Maybe I'm just, I'm a stick in the mud. I don't have a sense of humor. All right. Maybe that's me. But then coming in and to me making this more sort of that, that quintessential quantum leap, sort of that feeling, that message, that ineffable thing that I can point to and say, hey, I, I feel like that part of the episode helps this whole thing stick the landing a little bit, certainly much more than it was for me up until that moment. The problem I had with Ernie Hudson's moments uh, isn't actually with, with Ernie Hudson or or with magic. It's the fact that they, they seem to have now gone the opposite direction of last year underusing Ernie and instead now giving dumb lines to other people. <laughs> Addison explaining how unfair witch trials were was a clunky moment that last season would have been given to magic. When she says, uh, This is completely unfair. These women are damned if they do, damned if they don't. Like I said, coming into this, I knew nothing about the Salem witch trials except that. Like, everyone knows that. I, I don't know where Addison's been. But that that, that bothered me that uh, they're, they're making Magic out to be a really good character now, but someone's got to have the dumb lines, damn it. I, I really think that that was the episode trying to hammer home this feeling of righteous indignation. Where, again, we come to that sort of impasse that I was talking about earlier where they're so far back that this is reality for these people. And for Addison to stand in a control room in the 21st century, three years into our future, and to put her own ideals on it, her own worldview on it. And, okay, we can all have that moral indignation about the ignorance and the murder, basically the straight-up murder of innocent mm -hmm. women hundreds of years ago. We get it. I, I think we're all already there. So yes. do we need to have that scene? I guess yeah. maybe they thought we did just so that we could vent those emotions. I don't know. But maybe that's some, again, where, where the episode isn't quite firing correctly. Yes. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a moment that bothered me far more than, than the seance, and it it felt to me like one of those things, and we know it wasn't because she was saying it to camera, but it felt like one of those moments that should have been done from an over-the-shoulder angle with a voiceover added in later because the NBC executive said, oh, I don't know if we're following along, um, but but we can tell us what happened because it's, <laughs> it's right there. But, I mean, there are far clunkier things in this episode. If you're going to call out clunkiness, the fact that Ben is sitting in the back of a church kibitzing openly with Ian about what's going on and nobody seems to hear him or notice. Oh, come on. Both shows have done that repeatedly. Oh, on the stand in the middle of a court or a church or whatever they're in, it's the same meeting house. It's the little little house on the prairie schoolhouse, basically. It's literally on the stand talking to Jen openly. I know it's stage whisper, Soto Voci out of the side of his mouth, but come on. It's just... Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
I'm sorry, but I I know we're we're also this week going to be recording about blind faith, and if you don't bring up the fact that Sam does the exact same thing in front of a whole theatre full of people waiting to hear him play, then you, sir, are a hypocrite, because this has been going on since (laughs) Quantum Leap Day 1. You can call me a hypocrite when we're done with blind faith, sir. It's like it's like Schrodinger's hip- hypocrisy. You don't know if it's dead or alive just yet. You haven't observed it, so I'll, I'll it's, wait it's and both. see. Okay, all right, fine. <laughs> I'm just saying there's precedence. So whether we like it or not, this is this is quantum leap. We accept that Ben isn't always in a position to be able to pick up a phone and pretend to be making a call. Sometimes he just has to be having two conversations at once. And miraculously, no one notices. So how stupid has Ben in this episode? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to actually sit there and think that bringing somebody back from the dead by the use of CPR, does he not have any... Can he read the room? I know, but what what are you going to do? Are you going to let him die? That bothered me as well. My first response was, oh, we know where this is going. But then I thought, well, what else can he do? Is he just going to let him die? I mean, it bothered me more when he was talking to the guy with the pregnant wife and just saying, like, here's a bunch of stuff about your future. Oh, that doesn't sound suspicious at all. Um, Yeah, Ben has some some idiotic moments. Again, not that out of character. I mean, he, he did that a lot in 201, particularly. I, I feel like that was because plot. We needed to move the plot along. And okay, maybe this is something that is within character for Ben. He would try to save somebody's life, maybe without even thinking. I don't think you would stop and think. If someone collapsed in front of you and you knew CPR, I don't think any of us would stop and think, is this tactically a good thing to do right now? I think as a leaper, that's something that would be imperative for you to consider. If you would stop and think, then Chris, I hope I never collapse in front of you. Um, because <laughs> I don't want to think that like five <laughs> seconds of my life is being wasted away with you going mm, should I though? Are they going to burn me as a witch? I mean, there's no reason for both of us to die <laughs> maybe that was cynical, I'm sorry but yeah, I mean there's that and I know we, we joked about it at the top of the show there are some heavily signposted we know exactly what's going to happen here moments like when Morgan says those girls are no more witches than I am and it was the same with the CPR it was immediately obvious what was going to happen next. I thought of this episode as comfort viewing, popcorn viewing, in that kind of respect. There wasn't a lot of clever clever, and a lot of the drama was, okay, I see exactly what's about to happen here. And I was fine with that. I'm not saying that critically, I'm just observing it. And I think given that some of the some of the clever, clever stuff in Margarita's previous two scripts were the things that I did take more issue with, I was quite happy with that. All right. I, I guess that's something. I mean, I, it's certainly not the clunkiest bits that we saw in the script. I feel like the fourth act was just outrageous in so many respects. The fact that not only is Ian now into seances, but is also into astrology and having Venus in retrograde affecting the Farmer's Almanac and the weather. And was that like some way for them to say, hey, we can marry science and superstition? I guess. Jen says, it worked. <laughs> Your nonsense worked. Well, did it? All they did was say, the Farmer's Almanac says, It could have rained on that day. It could have rained on any day. Addison, her triumphant return to the role of hologram, tells Ben, There's a 50-50 chance it's about to rain. Isn't there always a 50% chance that something might happen? 
I don't think you understand how probabilities work, Chris. Um, I mean, there's, there's not a 50-50 chance it's going to rain when you're in a drought. It does seem fairly unlikely. And But uh, no, I, I, I take your point, though. It's uh, or she She's sharing a very useless observation. Exactly. It's like, how'd you get that? Well, we flipped a coin. I mean, it, <laughs> I know. it makes no logical sense. <laughs> it's a plan. Let's just roll with it, do something, and hope it rains. Which, you know, there was a whole episode of the original series about yeah, that, where that was, that was the exact ending. Okay, there's, there's a drought, there's no chance it's going to rain, but let's just, let's look up to the heavens. I've got to say, I, I loved all that stuff, um, despite the fact that, yes, the lead into it was clunky as anything, and really, would it? As soon as he got into the moment where he looked up and he said, let it rain. <laughs> let it rain! I was absolutely bought in, because you know, obviously, when he says that, it's not going to rain. Again, popcorn viewing. This is obvious beats, but um, just that moment where you're thinking, how long are they going to hold on this? How long before you see the, the close-up of the ground and the, the drop of rain? And uh, <laughs> it, I thought it was all really, really nicely played out. Yeah, they did go there. And I was thinking, what are we supposed to come away with here? Was it the Farmer's Almanac? Was it some sense of magic? Was it was it GTFW? God. Yeah. Yep. You're kind of going to have to rely on God's grace. Was it a Deus Ex thunderstorm? Yes. I mean, this is... Maybe I was primed because of a single drop of rain, but I was already ready to believe that, yes, that there's a drought. It does seem unlikely. It seems less than 50-50 chance that it's going to rain here. And Ben is betting everything on the fact that it will, and it did. And we've talked about this before. I'm not a religious person myself, but like most of us, I believe GTFW is a character in the Quantum Leap universe, and that's cool. Uh, and I was absolutely ready to assume that's what was happening here. Now, the interesting thing is GTFW doesn't really do much in the new series. That's much more of an original series conceit. I know there's people who are watching the new series that have never seen the original. Were they primed to expect a miracle? Were they more offended by the fact that there was a miracle? Um, didn't bother me at all. I, I took it in my stride, but then single drop of rain. We've all been there. Yeah, and I, I knew it was coming as well. I knew that everything you just said about the way yeah. it was and the beat and, and the, okay, is it, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Well, I mean, fiction has its demands and we sort of know where it has to go. So we know it is going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't know that I had much problem with that. The story set it up so that it was inevitable. What I have more trouble with is throughout this whole thing, everybody's smelling sulfur. So it must be the brimstone <laughs> from the satanic influence, blah, 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 blah. And after the rain. Okay, seriously, am I the only one who still smells sulfur? These people are farmers. These people are settlers and frontiers people, frontiersmen, however you want to say it. Do you think that they would not be able to recognize a contaminated water source? That to me strains credulity. You don't know that your own well is fouled with some of the most noxious smelling odors that you can ever think of. I mean, sulfur. Yeah. There is no mistaking the stink of sulfur. You're not going to go to the well and say, what happened? Yeah. I mean, they, they, were, they were all smelling it around the town. So clearly it was, it, regardless of, of what you've just said in terms of, you know, we all know what sulfur smells like, but even if you don't, it's very clearly set up as being something that's very pungent, and 
Has no one gone close to the well? Has no one got some water and noticed, oh, as I step closer to the well, it seems to smell stronger. As I step away, I can't smell it as much. The source of it should be very, very obvious. And in fact, Ben spots the source of it immediately. It does seem very odd that no one's picked up on this. Yeah, I mean, you figure that the town will live and die by the purity of its water source. I mean, that is that is job one when you make a settlement. Where's yes. the water? Oh, well, let's put it where the water is. Okay, we have to. And mm. the fact that the water source is now compromised, I get it's a drought. They were trying to walk the line with that, right? Because they're in a the drought, they're rationing the water, therefore maybe people – because I'm thinking, then why isn't everybody dehydrated, sick, and dying? Because they're all drinking the same water. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, they, they played it off where Bridget said that she gave her husband her own rations of water because he seemed so dehydrated. And that accelerated whatever affliction he had and killed him. So that's why she didn't get sick, but he did. But everybody's drinking the same water. Everybody should be vomiting their guts out and dying of some kind of phage that they don't understand. Yeah. Everyone else seems pretty darn healthy. (laughs) They seem seem all right. I mean, (laughs) I just – it's another point where they can, I feel like, shoehorn modern sensibilities into the backwards ignorance of the time. Obviously, it's a contaminated water source. We know because Morgan keeps uh, charcoal in her water. The flowers in front of your shop bloom while the rest of town suffers in drought. Because I treat my water with carbon, you should try it sometime. The charcoal is a purifier. Oh, here we have the instrument of your death, the visible symbol of the ignorance that is going to kill these women for no reason. All of a sudden, God makes it rain, and that fire that was going to kill them turns into the thing that saves the town because we all know that when logs burn for five minutes, they turn directly into charcoal. So let's just dump the biggest logs into the well and purify the well. Okay, let's leep. Done now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what? Yeah. I, I don't know how that stuff really works, but it did seem a touch easy. Do we need to take the episode to task for this? Am I being too nitpicky? I I struggle with it because, yeah, especially when you put it like that. Am I being too nitpicky? You know I'm the guy that when I'm writing about this in a few weeks' time... I I will write pages about everything you've just said. But did I find it entertaining nonetheless? Yes, I did. That's where I struggle with this a little bit. (laughs) You know, I've said the same thing about Margarita's last two episodes as well. Really enjoyed them. I just saw plot holes in them. This time round, I was less bothered by the plot holes. And I can't, I'm not sure I can explain why, because I don't disagree with uh, most of what you've just said. I think because at the end of the day, um, all the things that I'm pointing out as criticisms are tangential to the message of the episode. And that's where I feel like maybe we need to walk a line as reviewers of these shows in the sense that we can always find fault and nitpick and say, well, does it make sense in the broader scheme if you're thinking of it strictly logically? No, obviously not. And we're right to call that out. But at the same time, what is the message the show is trying to convey? And so does this become a means to help convey that message? Well, in a best case scenario, yes. And I feel yeah. like that's yeah. maybe why you don't have the acrimony that I, I seem to be spewing forth here, because I think on the emotional and sort of that broader message beat, it does work. Yeah. 
and it worked really well for me. And maybe it worked better for me than it did for you. But it, yes, it's, it's enabling me to focus more on that this time around. Yeah, I feel like it was also bolstered by very strong performances by Madeline Horcher, who played Bridget. Uh, she was the one that was uh, mm. in the bonnet the whole time. And then Amanda Jaros, who plays uh, Morgan, who was the apothecary, yes. which, you know, I'm surprised they didn't make more of that because most times witches were wise women who were into like herb lore and folk medicine and things like that. So the fact that she was the apothecary, I mean, it just screams witch, right? Because that's, yeah. that's what they dabble in most times. So mm. I thought that that was pretty clever. And I thought that they were both really strong in the roles that they were given, especially Madeline. I thought that she was terrific. So yeah. the fact that you had two really good people playing off of Ray, that dynamic for the episode really works. So you're willing to say, okay, I'm still on board. And I think the person who played the magistrate, uh, what's his name? Bloodworth, right? That was yes. uh, Brian Van Holt, almost the perfect yeah. sort of heavy. You know, he reminded yes. me a bit of some of the heavies from Salvation of Bust. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was William Mark McCullough that we spoke to that played the bad guy in that. And I feel like he was channeling some of that energy that, that William brought to, to the role in Salvation. So, Yeah, I, I think everything, whatever you think about the script, everything that came around that in terms of, yes, those those three performers particularly – but also the set dressing, the costumes. There was so much that contributed towards this looking and, and feeling right and absolutely drawing me into the story that, yeah, I found this the, the leap portions of this to be, to be great. And the project stuff was fun. I'm glad they're still um, enabling anyone to be the hologram. You know that was one of my initial beefs way back in episode three, of the first season where Addison was running herself ragged and I was saying then, why aren't there other people? And now, yeah, anyone can go in and be the hologram. Great. Right. And it doesn't take any specific expertise. You just do rock, paper, scissors yes. until somebody's on trial, then Jen has to go in. Yeah. Ian says it's my turn, which we know because it was meant to be Ian's turn last week <laughs> and Mason got sick. So it's Ian's turn. They're overdue. <laughs> so they have a board now it's like the chore wheel yes. who's, who's turned it as who is it as the hologram you know that's what it is they had a vision board say <laughs> it's my turn as a hologram next wherever ben goes oh salem all right why not why not why not well while we're on the topic of holograms see that segue i did right there i mean yeah. this this episode um ends in a place where I think everybody was hoping that the show would get back to. If you feel like you want to try, will you be my hologram? Battison is back. Guess who's back? Back yes. again. Yes. They had to get there eventually. We couldn't have carried on with Addison being in the background indefinitely. And it's another new stage to the relationship. We've had them as as a couple, but Ben can't remember. Then we've had them as a couple. Then we, we've gone through all the stuff in season two where they've, they've been angry with each other for various different reasons. And now we're moving past that to that those exes being friends, which doesn't always happen in real life. Sometimes it does happen in real life. And obviously here it, it had to because plot. And it was very well handled and it made me feel... It made me feel. I don't even want to finish that sentence. It just made me feel when I saw them <laughs> connecting like that. It got to me, and it was nice, and I I liked it. 
Well written and well performed. I'm trying to think if you're channeling Shawshank there or the third season <laughs> finale of Picard and Data. <laughs> Neither intentionally, but yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I see where you're going with that. Yeah. I was happy to see that turn too. Um, I really... I've said this before a lot this season. I didn't know how much I missed the Ben Addison dynamic until I realized how much I missed the Ben Addison yes. dynamic. Uh, having yeah. her back in and having them confront one another again in a place that we're more accustomed to seeing them. And by that, I just mean cordial. Yeah. Without the baggage, without the betrayal, without the hurt, without the sadness. It felt like, oh, yeah, that's – oh, yeah, no, that's right. Oh, I really enjoyed the way that they played it. I enjoyed, like you said, the fact that they acknowledge that it's not going to be the same, but they're both willing to try. Mm. And I feel like this is the place that Addison wanted the relationship to be yes. in the second episode, in the third episode, when she was blatantly telling Ben, I will answer any question you have. Ask me anything. We need to talk about this. And now Ben is finally there. And it's just nice to see the two of them together and interacting as friends again. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. And again, that's another reason why at the end of the day, you know, even though there was some stuff that was very questionable in the episode, there are a lot of things to like. And this is, I think, chief among them. I, I can't fault it. I can't fault it for that. And I'm glad that that's where we ended up. And I'm glad that we got a proper leap out this time. We didn't just leave it there. <laughs> because that's something the show's been doing too. So, yeah. and seeing as we're at the end of the episode, I kind of feel like we're at the end of the discussion here, Matt. Mm. Uh, you think maybe it's time for some final thoughts? Yeah, I, I, th I think this is a really fun episode, and it's one that I will gladly return to regularly. I, I find it very, very watchable. You've opened my eyes to some of some of the things that I hadn't noticed in my first couple of views but i don't honestly think whilst it, it's good to be aware of them and it's good to have that kind of discussion i don't think that's going to spoil my enjoyment of it in future because i just i just flat out enjoyed it which surprised me as well i might add because i i don't want my quantum leap to be going back to the 17th century so yeah it was, it was a pleasant surprise that i enjoyed it so much and just just had fun with it yeah and for all of the criticisms that I've lodged against this episode. In the end, I had fun with it as well. And listen, you got to give it this. It's, again, trying to broaden what makes Quantum Leap Quantum Leap and whether or not that is leaping further back in time to places that we might not be comfortable with as viewers just yet. Maybe it's a way to indoctrinate us into accepting more and different kinds of leaps, kind of like we've been doing since this show has premiered. It's a completely different animal than the Legacy series, but that's not always a bad thing. And if we get to tell different kinds of stories because they're taking some of the fetters off, obviously they're going to be growing pains. And I feel like this episode is a perfect example of that. It's Margarita trying to do something very ambitious and to get some really good quantum leap type messages out there, but doing it in a way that we haven't seen before. And if that involves Ben leaping back to, you know, 1692, then so be it. I mean, at mm. least we're trying something new and different, which any show needs to, to thrive, not just survive, but, <laughs> but thrive. thrive, not survive, <laughs> but thrive. And with that, I think that closes the book on uh, – it's the devil's book – on our discussion of A Kind of Magic. But 
Stay tuned because after the break, we will be bringing you our interview with Margarita Matthews and Amanda Jaros. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. Are you a fan of the Apple TV show For All Mankind? Then you'll love Moon Show, a For All Mankind podcast, which you can find on the Infinite Potato Alliance podcast network. I'm your host, Nick Yeager, and each week I discuss successive episodes of For All Mankind with a rotating panel of guests. Moon Show, a For All Mankind podcast. Moon Show, you are go for launch. Hi, I'm Margarita Matthews, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Hey, hey Matt, you know, it occurred to me that we completely forgot to discuss one little key element of this episode. What what did we think of the evil chip plot? We, we got some lip service to it at the beginning. <sighs> yes, that's right. Yeah, we, we never spoke about that. Um, oh, God, so, yeah, so much going on in this show. And, uh, yeah, that, that passed us by. Hey, yeah, so I'm I'm curious to know. Hey, everyone, we're back. Hi, hi. Hope you enjoyed hey. the break. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad that they sort of gave a nod to it. Does it seem mm. like they're putting it to bed because they did have Rachel say that she she what she jailbreaks she jailbreaked it jailbroke it. How do you say that? Yeah, I I couldn't tell if that was a little postscript to the plot. Okay, we're tying a little bow on it. It's done. Or if this was one of those we're reminding you it's running. So that when it comes back in a big way next week, you're not surprised. I, I just I couldn't quite tell. Could go either way. Yeah, I, I was thinking. Yeah, maybe they're just keeping some kind of continuity, keeping it as an open mm. question. You'd think that either of us were pretty smart individuals that we would have asked Margarita about that, but we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler was... for the interview that's about to come. We yeah, we completely forgot to ask her about it too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this is the first time we've had Margarita on the show, and she's written four big episode so it, it was so hard not to not to just let this interview run for six seven hours if we'd have started getting into things like evil chips we would have been there all day yeah so hey listen i guess that's as good an intro for this interview as we need so everybody sit back relax and enjoy our interview with margarita matthews Hey, this is Matt and Chris. Welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. And we have with us today the Season 1 Story Editor, Season 2 Co-Producer, the Writer of O Year of Little Faith, Leap Die Repeat, Judgment Day, and this week's episode, A Kind of Magic. It's Margarita Matthews. Margarita, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It's been a, been a long time coming. I know we wanted to talk to you about Judgment Day. Um, the, the timing just didn't work out. So it's, mm. it's really great that we could have you on, uh, now. So much to talk about. Let's just dive right in. Um, can you tell me a bit about what your background was before Quantum Leap and what led you to, to joining the show's team, uh, at the, the start of the first season? Yeah. So I started out freelancing, which, um, pretty much just meant that I was picking up any job writing that I could. So, um, a lot of that included ghostwriting which sounds um, sad when you really think about it because you're basically giving away, uh, you know, literally signing an NDA saying that you're never going to take credit for whatever you wrote. But it was actually a really incredible experience 
getting all of that um, kind of, uh, you know, you know, they say 10,000 hours is what you need in order to really get a sense of, of mastery over a thing. And I felt like that was kind of where I got my hours. Uh, so by the time the quantum leap opportunity had come up, I had written, you know, countless um, scripts, countless, um, you know, pieces of writing that uh, got me really sort of comfortable with who I was as a writer. But the truth is, I don't have a, a formal background in this. Um, I didn't go to school for it. I'm an immigrant. So for me, that wasn't really um, a thing that I thought was possible. I never imagined that I could be, you know, writing for... Um, film and television. When, uh, when I first moved out here, I actually, uh, you know, we bought a season past Universal Studios and we used to go on that tram ride. I don't know if you guys been on, on at Universal. Mm-hmm. So you go on that tram ride, right? And you, and you take, yeah. and you take it all the way around, um, the back lot. And you, as immigrants, you know, we paid. So we had to make sure that we, we made good use of our season pass. So we were going <laughs> like it was our job. And we, I, I mean, I memorized that studio tour and we were going up, you know, past the, the Jaws shark and up past that little hill. And we used to wave at the people um, who, who were there shooting, you know, on set. And there was a moment when I was shooting um, of little faith where um, it's, it's that little house right on that hill above uh, the, the Jaws shark and uh, the tram you know, came up as I was going to get a snack from the craft, you know, uh, table. And there were kids on the tram waving at me. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, this is this is a real, you know, full circle moment. Um, so it's a very, very long winded way of saying um, I, I just kind of, it, it, you know, I, I wrote until I kind of got here. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote one script and then another script and I submitted it to um, you know, competitions and festivals until I got representation. And then that led to, um, yeah. you know, me co-writing a movie and then, uh, my first, you know, uh, writing gig and so on and so forth. And that's just my experience. You know, some people have, um, different paths and people, uh, you know, have formal training. I just happen not to. So, but, uh, here we are, uh, you know, talking about it. So something, something worked out, um, something worked out right. And that, you, you mentioned the Jaws, Jaws shark. Uh, you had to silence the Jaws shark for the filming, didn't you? So you you were that that shark that you'd enjoyed so many times years before. You you were presumably looking at younger versions of yourself, thinking I'm I'm slightly ruining the the tram experience for you. <laughs> but in a few years' time, you could be here silencing that shark. I, as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's you know, it's it's the magic of movies. We when we were shooting indoors, you, we weren't. You know, we weren't hearing any any of that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but uh, and by the time we were doing our outdoor shots, we it was you know the studio tour was closed. Mm-hmm. But and that was by the way that was another great moment where we were standing outside doing our sort of like exorcist exterior shots, and um, the fireworks were like going off in the background. And so it's kind of like the fireworks and the and you're shooting the thing and it's like a perfect you know LA night and you're like God, I <laughs> not to say dreams do come true, but uh, dreams do come true, you know. So that was, that was the feeling. When you first started uh, your writing career, you were freelancing. But when you did feature work, were you gravitating towards science fiction more than other genres, or do you have a, a specific genre that you like to write in? Now that you're in a time travel show, I, I'm going to assume you like science fiction. But Quantum Leap is so many different types of story. Yeah. So yeah, no, you you assume right. <laughs> I definitely. Um, <laughs> I definitely like uh, science fiction, fantasy. It's what we call genre 
um, in, in the biz. Um, but it's, uh, it's, that's definitely always been my favorite. Um, it, to me, it's, it's sort of like the best metaphor for reality. And I get a little bored, um, dealing with reality, <laughs> mm-hmm. just the way that it is. I think it's much more fun to, uh, story tell, you know, from the perspective of, um, these big sweeping metaphors and these things that, um, don't seem like they could ever happen. Mm-hmm. And quantum leap is, is the really feel good version of that, I think. Uh, so that's, that's why I, I like writing for the show. I think a lot of science fiction is very bleak, which I totally love separately. You know, I think that that's definitely, uh, that's how I was raised. I was raised on a lot of, bleak Russian literature and, you know, film. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll take, I'll take a bleak sci-fi any day, but it, there's something nice about hopeful, you know, optimistic kind of uh, representations of what could be. And, you know, they say with, with sci-fi, sometimes we end up informing reality with art. I mean, you think about something like Minority Report and, or, or even, I think it was, uh, 2001, uh, Space Odyssey, where it, there were tablets, you know, on the screen. Mm-hmm. And the question is, did, you know, Kubrick invent the, <laughs> the iPad or, or was that sort of the inevitability of the design of a digital tablet? Mm-hmm. And same thing with Minority Report. Is it, is it that there was this representation of what it would be like to be bombarded by very specific targeted marketing? Or is that the inevitability of marketing? And so, I mean, we might not ever know, but I kind of feel like there is a little that we inform with our art for the future. Mm-hmm. And so I think anything positive that we can put on screen as far as, you know, representations of what technology can do for good, I think that that's good for, for humanity. I, that's that's kind of funny to me because I'm thinking back to the episodes that you wrote. Um, one of them is pretty bleak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Judgment Day is uh, <laughs> it's got that good bleak sci-fi vibe going, but it's I, I probably should have just thought about the scripts you wrote to answer my my original question because Leap Die Repeat is such an in the weed science fiction story, mm-hmm. and it also goes into all the great geeky like I guess what you would call techno babble on Star Trek, but the Quantum Leap version of that with Janice in the control room and talking about how the repeat is happening and everything. So um, I guess my question to you is when you're approaching writing for quantum, um, are you thinking about how you can get more into the lore and more into some of the more geeky genre elements or is it, is, is it the story first? I I guess, I guess it's, that's kind of a broad question, but yeah, no, I think it's a fair one. Um, the, you know, on the record answer is story first, right? And, and that's, that is the, that is the correct answer. The, the, the nerd in me, of course, is always looking for, you know, for the, the fun, um, things to, to allude to and, and the, you know, it, it not, not just as far as, you know, uh, references to other bits of science fiction, but, the what this show was ultimately based on right the original show and so any any opportunity that i have to do you know a little wink wink uh for the original fans i i like that as well i mean i'm sure you caught uh the 666 in the you know in the exorcist Mm -hmm. episode that was a full 
blatant, you know, um, you know, wave to the fans. And there was a moment, by the way, where we were running out of time and we, we almost didn't get that. And it was like, do we really need that for the story? And I was like, we have to get it. This episode doesn't work if we don't get it. Um, and, and, you know, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And, you know, Chris and I had a lot of fun doing that. But it was, um, that's, I think, I think that, of course, story is the most important thing. A bunch of, you know, references strung together make no sense. But, um, mm-hmm. you know. What's a what's a what's a dinner without seasoning? <laughs> is, is kind of how I feel about it. So I feel like um, that's that, that's totally that. And speaking speaking of that bleak um, bit in Judgment Day, that was totally um, you know the the snow falling and all of that. That was um, you know a, a kind of a not not a direct reference to or anything like that. But that was inspired by um, that scene in, in Blade Runner twenty forty nine where he's kind of. Mm-hmm. lies back in the snow it's one of my favorite um moments in modern cinema and so to be able to kind of do something like that where it's quiet and you know ray or ben uh ray is, is, is the actor's name obviously um steps out to um you know and, and kind of there's this quiet moment where he touches the snow it yes it's bleak and it's 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 a sad thing but it also uh is a really beautiful moment and um so I can't, I, I kind of, like, I loved it and I kind of felt like it was, it was okay to have that little bit of bleakness because, you know, uh, he fixed everything is, is how we like to, like to think about it. Um, maybe the future got corrected, um, in Judgment Day. We, we, we don't know. We'll have to see when we get there. I'm always really interested in how the the writing assignments work on a show like Quantum that goes from different genres from one, one week to the next. And you've had, Two, as we've we've spoken about, very uh, very nerdy, hard sci-fi episodes. That the two nerdiest to date, along with two. Uh, uh, to, to be fair, those are the ones that have really lent into the sci-fi lore more than any of the rest. And two, um, well, yeah, the, the the horror episode and now the Salem witch trials. Two slightly more out there episodes in terms of pushing the boundaries of what we can do. I, I'm interested in kind of two two things really. How you end up getting those assignments, and does that also represent the kind of support you give the other writers? Because I know it's a collaborative approach, and everyone's everyone's got their fingers in every everyone else's episodes. Are, are you the one in the writers' room that's sort of helping out with the time travel stuff? And is that is that is that your thing? Can, can we feel you in the, the rest of the series? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I think a lot of people um, are curious about how writer's rooms work because it's such a mystery. And truly, even as a writer, mm. kind of circling the job of getting into it, like getting into a writer's room. Until I was in a writer's room, I really didn't understand what was happening. So it's, it's a very, very reasonable question. Um, it's, there's a, a couple of different, you know, ways that uh, assignments happen. Sometimes they just kind of happen because of uh, scheduling. And that's just a thing. And it's like, you're doing this episode and this is kind of what, what it is. And then you're, you're jumping into it and you're going for it. Generally, if all goes well, the writer is bringing an idea to the table and says, mm-hmm. this is kind of what I'd like to do. And, you know, the rest of the room supports that and the showrunners work with that. And, and then we all, you know, move forward and create a story together. Um, 
sometimes it happens that you say, this is what I want to do. And then it, it just doesn't work out scheduling wise. And another writer gets to do that. And that also happens. So actually leap die repeat the idea of doing like a repeating sort of sequence of leaps that was, um, Ben and Derek wanted to do an episode like that. Mm -hmm. And then they just, the scheduling didn't work out. So I ended up uh, writing that episode, but, um, and I was desperate to do the alien episode, like <laughs> desperate, um, of, of season two, but it just didn't, it didn't work out. And that's, yeah. I thought that, uh, Romy did a beautiful job with that. And so it's, you know, that's just, that's just the nature of what it is. And so you gotta love it until you, until you, you know, and you want, you want to do it, but if you can't do it, you gotta support the other person in doing it. But I'd say we're all very involved in that. Um, these episodes, uh, especially any, anything that's really, uh, you know, fantasy forward or, or horror forward or genre mm-hmm. forward, as we say, is um, probably me coming to the table and saying, I'm desperate to do an episode about witches and let's, let's find a way to do it. I wanted to do one in season, season one and it just didn't work out. And mm-hmm. so it's time came in season two and that was, uh, you know, that was me going, which episode every time we talk yeah. about, <laughs> you know, what, well, let's, let's brainstorm some ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would just <laughs> witches every time and eventually i got to do it so let, let's talk witches then since you were so desperate to do it did, was there did you have to do a lot of research to get yourself ready for it i'm getting the, the impression that actually you, you had all this in the back of your head already and it just came to the fore. yeah i mean is that fair it's or? it's totally fair it's um the answer is yes a lot of research but a lot of that research also happened to be research that i had been it had been a lifetime of research for me yes. um you know starting with like watching you know some high school um rendition of the crucible right it's like it's that all that stuff exists um has existed in the back of my head and i think exists in a lot of uh viewers heads i've i've kind of found just from talking to like some press it's there's there's a lot of very um excited sort of like witch trial um not to say fans of the trials but fans of the period you know in which that happened and and people who want to talk about it and what it meant because again to to me it's it's a fantastic metaphor this is the furthest back we've ever gone but it's so such a relevant topic um to you know to any year and i think it's um it, it's it's so sad and that, that something in you know happening in 1692 could still be relevant in in 2020 you know 324 mm-hmm. but um that's just the human condition, isn't it? And so it's, I think that's, uh, that was the thing from a storytelling perspective that kind of attracted me to, to the subject matter. Um, is that a cat? Is that a- it, it is. But just, please just <laughs> ignore her. She, she has a tendency to do this. What is the cat's name? <laughs> this is Scully. Uh, oh, sorry. She- Scully? Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I'd like uh, for Scully to please introduce herself um, and do, do a little <laughs> oh, intro oh for the God. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> she always pops up at the most uh, uh, inopportune moments, and I and I never edit her out. Uh, yeah, I, if, <laughs> if I find out that this cat has been edited out, <laughs> we will have problems. <laughs> 
but I have no idea where we were now. Um, well, I, 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 I know I can follow up. Yeah, back. sure. Back. So we're, where we're talking about um, a kind of magic and the fact that it is as far back as anybody has ever leaped, mm. so far as we've ever seen on screen anyway. And I was wondering if there were special considerations that you had to take into uh, into account when crafting the story uh, or, you know, if you can tell me about what what kind of ideas you had, things that you had to be cognizant of, maybe things that you had to discard because it's really, you know, a, a different kind of leap on so many levels. Yeah. Uh, very great question. It, the, the answer is, yeah, there was a lot to consider. Um, from right, right off the bat, from just a production standpoint, it was a question of, can, is this even a producible episode? Right. Cause we need a town, um, you know, can we build that town? Probably not, you know, for a, a seven, eight day shoot. Um, we need to set the tone for that town. So we're looking at livestock. Um, I was desperate to get a cat in there. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. can we, can we get a cat? Can we do this? Can we do that? Um, and it just sort of piece by piece, uh, by the grace of God, we can only assume it came together because it was like we found this um, town that they built for another movie. I want to see The Revenant. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head um, up in, in the mountains over here in L.A. And so it was sort of already built to look like that time period, you know, more or less. And we dressed it to be a little bit more Massachusetts. And there was this hill that had this little church, which was perfect. And um, our, our director, Avi, really uh, fought for all the livestock and the animals. And it kind of, I think that it, it sounds so silly, but I think those little details are so important because the minute you drop into the episode, you're, you're like, oh, we're, we're in an episode. <laughs> you know, something's happening. And um, I think if you give the viewers that moment, if a lot of the rest of the episode is in a prison cell or you know, indoors, elsewhere, it, they, they feel like they got, um, a little taste of the, of, of the authenticity of that time period. Um, so there was production concerns. And then there were also just, you know, it's the concern of when you turn on a, a show on network television and people are speaking old English, <laughs> it's, it can be a problem because people, you know, might think that they got the wrong channel. They might change it. They don't know they're watching Quantum Leap, you know, whatever it is. And I'm a huge fan of, you know, period writing. And so I, I really wanted to lean into, um, again, the authenticity of that language, uh, but ultimately had to sort of split the difference and use a couple of words here and there that made you feel like, okay, all right, this is olden. Um, but, uh, ultimately, you know, understandable and not something that you need to constantly be rewinding. But, um, like off the top of my head, uh, Mauser is a word for cat that we, most people don't know. And so off the top, you know, the top of the episode, someone says, uh, says something about that. And, um, you know, not, not overdoing it with the these and thous and, and all of that, I think, was, mm. was ultimately the, the balancing act. Mm. So one of the differences that uh, you even uh, mentioned in the course of the script is, and I'm going to guess this is for dramatic purposes, uh, in Salem, they, 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 ha- they hung the witches. The witches were hanged. So I, the, the fact that you guys were having them being burned at the stake, I know it played into the overall story and the arc of the story and also the resolution of the story. But um, as someone who was um, or is vested in that period and you know the ins and outs, you know the facts behind the story – uh, are there other compromises that you felt that you had to make for dramatic purposes? 
That was one of the biggest ones, actually. Um, and, uh, and if memory serves, they kept, because uh, I know we're recording this, before the episode has aired officially. So I've seen the cut, but I haven't seen it on TV. Um, if memory serves, they kept this. But I had in the script um, that uh, in the church, they, you know, the magistrate says, burn. And then the girls say, I thought they hanged witches in Salem. So um, the reason I, I wrote that in was because I was worried that somebody would uh, wouldn't know the truth and say, "Well, wait a minute, what a mm -hmm. what a bunch of hacks mm -hmm. those writers are." Um, and I wanted you to know, no, no, <laughs> this is we had to change it uh, for re really for dramatic effect um, more than anything uh, because the way that the story ultimately goes. There's a burning pyre, and then we're dragging the witches towards the pyre, and it's just, it's better dramatically, visually, to represent that. And also, it was just, there was something kind of about, um, you know, the, the nooses that was just a little, it's like a step too far for sort of like the tone of Quantum Leap. Um, I think if some of that imagery, I think it's just, it's just not conducive to, what you know like it, it can get in the way of the experience because it's so visually triggering and so i think um that was kind of another reason to go hey let's go big and dramatic um and acknowledge that hey we're we're taking liberty for the purposes of the tv show by the way that's something that is we had to do for episode um 11 too i mean the reality is that for a nuclear reactor to melt down and explode <laughs> the way that it does um, in that episode is highly, highly unlikely. Um, it's, so, but it's just, and I, and by the way, I worked with scientists from the science and entertainment exchange to, you know, confirm facts. And ultimately what you see on screen is theoretically possible. So that was, that was very important to me, but the, is it the most likely version? No, but a nuclear meltdown isn't necessarily visually interesting um to watch so that was the way that we had to go with it and that's something that i think i've learned from just from working in in this industry is that prior to this i was a big snob about how things were shown on tv like huge i, I would i would have notes you know i would have opinions why didn't do, they do it this way oh that person's accent isn't technically correct oh i understand what they're saying in that other language and it's not you know perfect and now that I know what it takes to make, you know, uh, a, you know, TV or film, I mean, you guys, like the speed with which we're making these episodes is astonishing. Like you're sitting down, you're breaking a story within a week or two, the story's broken. Then you're off to write, you have a week to write the thing. Then you're shooting, you know, you have a week to shoot the thing and then you're editing. Like within a couple months you have, you know, you go from having absolutely nothing to having, um, an entire episode of television. So I no longer, uh, look down upon, uh, you know, <laughs> people, uh, for, for what, for what it takes to make, um, something go. But I think, I don't think it's an excuse for, for, you know, not doing, uh, what's right. But I think you sometimes you just have to know that you have to, uh, make compromises and make the best choices. And that's, that's kind of how it is. Yeah. The, the show seems like, uh, you've explained all the reasons why a terrifically hard, show to produce in a short space of time remaining accurate yet dramatic and a kind of magic i imagine possibly more so than some of the previous ones because this would have been right on the cusp of the writer's strike oh, yeah am i right so oh, yeah so we 
were you able to stay involved in the production right the way through as far as you had done previously? Or did, was there a point where you had to step back? We shot, um, I believe it was half of the episode uh, when we got mm-hmm. the news. So uh, we were up, up on set and it was, um, we kind of, we still didn't know if it was going to mm-hmm. happen or not. Um, and the rules are the minute that that email goes out, it pencils mm-hmm. down. So um, I think I think it went out minutes after we wrapped and so it was very much like well um it's been nice knowing you and i said goodbye Mm -hmm. to everyone and kind of walked off set and that's what you're supposed to do and um Mm -hmm. and then you just you're you're really you don't touch it from there so um the sort of good news for the episode is that it was already um you know halfway halfway shot it was written the script was there everything was there um, and I felt very comfortable leaving it, you know, um, to, to fate from there. We, we weren't sure if it would pick up after the strike or what would happen. Um, and it, it ultimately came together and, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's, it, it turned out, it turned out, um, the way it was supposed to. So it, all of it, <laughs> speaking, speaking globally <laughs> and, speaking, <laughs> and speaking, uh, and speaking specifically about the episode. So um yeah yeah i was yeah. i was curious about that as well because um i was thinking that if you had written the script and you maybe had to step back from the production it seems like you just said you were halfway through um normally during the process so there are things that you might be okay it's on the page but we're seeing how it plays out between the actors and in the scene are there scenes in this that even though they were produced as written because they had to be that you might have tweaked or, or approached differently if you had had the chance. Um, nothing, nothing jumps, um, jumps to mind. And I think the reason is that we worked, uh, we were all working very closely together, uh, while we were shooting and while we were prepping. And I really think when you prep, the right way and you get on the same page with everyone and the DP and the director mm-hmm. and the writer are all kind of working together. And um, then theoretically everything should go well. And, and that's kind of how um, I think it ultimately did. And the only things that I, I ever really miss are sometimes there's jokes and things that get cut for time. <laughs> so there was, I think there was a, a joke that didn't make it that um, Ben, Ben, I think is like uh, in the, in the trial room and he's talking to the crowd and he goes, friends, you know, I once read a quote that says, um, science, uh, magic is just science. We don't understand yet. And then it cuts to the girls and they go, I didn't know Elizabeth could read. So we cut that part just for time. <laughs> things like that, that I really, you know, really kind of, um, live for. So it's, uh, it's, it, but it's totally, you just, you, there's so much stuff that ends up, um, not not to say so much, but there's definitely stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor purely for time. 43 minutes is just not a very long time. And, you know, no matter how hard you try to write the perfect length of, of a script, there's always just, you know, some things take longer, some mm-hmm. things don't, some scenes get a little more emotional and they need a little more space to breathe. And so you end up having to um, cut some of that. Uh, there's a, there's a, you know, a, a much longer director's cut of uh, the Exorcist episode, you know, somewhere as well that that, um, that exists, you know. So it's it, that. So that's the only thing that I ever miss is just more, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's mm-hmm. more jokes, more you know, more um, more space for for the scenes, that kind of thing. But 
Um, otherwise, you know, it's, it's certainly is, is the vision. I had one other question about the time period and maybe the balancing act that you had to strike because it feels to me that the further back in time you send Ben, um, the more of a fish out of water he's going to be. He's not going to be able to realistically slot himself into these situations because the cultural gap is just so wide. And you had made mention of that. Um, even one of the characters said to him, You've, you, in these last two days, you become a different person, essentially. I think she said something like your bearing is different or more strident or something like that. But, um, I'm curious to know it again, being cognizant of what you need to do story wise, but also to make it believable in, in, in that sense. Are, are there touchstones that you try to, to, to hit or how, how does that work when you're approaching it? Just as far as Ben being, you know, fish out of water. Well, yeah, but also um, making the character so – he's so far in the past at this point. I mean, he's almost going to be anachronistic by default. Right. So it's because they're just such disparate time periods. Right. So uh, when when you're approaching a story like this, and I got to assume now that there is no you know limitation to how far back he can leap um, – are there things that you have to keep in mind or that you, you, like a set of rules that you try to keep in mind to make the story seem believable, even in the sense of, you know, these, these increasingly um, distant time periods? Totally. It's, um, well, the, the thing to keep in mind also if, if for us is, you know, we're in season two now. Um, and as we hopefully keep going, um, Every time Ben feels like a fish out of water, it, you know, we have to sort of reinvent that experience because he can't each time be like, well, whoa, I'm in a new place and what am I going to do? You know, he's, he's, he's savvy. He's getting a sense of how to, um, you know, pick up on clues and, and all of that. So in that sense, this was sort of, um, actually a fun opportunity to, suspend some of that because no matter usually if Ben tries to fit in he fits in pretty well you know he if he's you know thinking he's, he's using using that logic and he's picking up on the clues he can sort of you know um fudge his way through the situation and in this case the harder he tries the more he seems to fail because the more he leans into science and who he really is and reason the less reasonable the town is right because it just seems more and more like witchcraft to them so uh in that sense it was actually a lot of fun uh to to kind of let let him fail a little bit and the, and explore the humor of that and it was also fun to let the team do something other than turn to ziggy and say well what what what's happening and what should we do about it? Right. Uh, the idea of going to the library and getting all these old archival books. And then the idea of that failing and turning to astrology is also kind of part of the fun of, of all of that, but it's definitely something we're constantly thinking about and keeping in mind because it's, it's you, you, you want to find that balance between humor and the joy of experiencing a new thing, but also believability of this is our protagonist who is not dumb, right? He knows what he's doing. And, um, hopefully that balance was found here. Okay. I, I could see like striking that balance. Um, do you foresee having Ben go back 
further or as far in as the show progresses and also i guess the second part of that is you get to write a lot of really neat sci-fi episodes or do you have your next big sci-fi idea for the geeks out there i I always have the next sci-fi idea um in the back of my head but um i can't you know can't no spoilers um is, Uh is, is the official answer um i think that Without, yeah, I'm trying to think what the best way of saying this is. Um, without confirming nor denying, because the truth is we, we don't know, um, you know, what we're going to be able to do or not. I know I will always be pitching fun sort of, you know, ideas for, you know, to me, to breaking the mold a little bit, I think. I think what's fun about a show is, doing a thing consistently so that people get really comfortable with what they're watching and then breaking the mold a little bit and jumping to a time period that's really uncomfortable for our protagonist or, mm. um, you know, doing something that just is a little unexpected. So I'm, I'm always looking for that, that episode. So I'm sure you'll see, <laughs> you'll see more, <laughs> um, as far as how far back, um, in the past and the future, who knows? That's something that I think will, uh, you'll have to stay tuned to find out. <laughs> well, <laughs> look forward Exciting. to that. Do you think you'll be, uh, for, for your, your next episode, if you can share, um, for, or for your next pitch, are you likely to be leaning more into that? hard science fiction side or more into the fantastical side because say those those four you've had so far have been very much two, two in one camp two in the other where can we expect to see you go next um it's so funny because it's like you're you're pointing out a, the reality of kind of what i love which is hard science and hard magic <laughs> and i think that uh, the, <laughs> the fun of uh, a kind of magic is that this was an episode that sort of suggested that maybe they're one and the same and that is Mm-hmm. Ultimately, mm-hmm. what I've always kind of loved about Quantum Leap, which is that it's sort of always had a little bit of a spiritual side, not a religious side, but a spiritual side to it, where you're kind of questioning if the quantum accelerator is sort of participating in the experience. Mm-hmm. And if so, what, who is the quantum accelerator and what does that mean for us? And um, do we have some sort of, you know, metaphorical quantum accelerator in our own lives, you know? And so I, I, I think that's always a really fun thing to explore on the show. So I, I'm never going to tire of, of that topic. And I think with the exorcist episode, that was, that was a thing too, that was sort of like, you were really meant to be left with the question of, well, wait a minute, mm-hmm. you know, dot, dot, dot is was it or wasn't it? And did she see a thing or didn't she see a thing? And the answer is very much meant to be maybe, right? And mm-hmm. so I, I'm sure you could expect that from me forevermore. Um, but I also think it's, it's fun to, I just like to embrace any genre. I think the specificity of mm-hmm. uh, a, a kind of like world is really fun. It doesn't have to be overtly science fiction or fantasy. It can be, you know, just the specificity of a time period. I think there's something really an end of a movie maybe that you're trying to evoke or, or something, mm. something of that nature, maybe a story 
where you know maybe nothing fantastical is happening necessarily but you're like oh i get i get what this is you know and i think what our show aims to do is sort of lure you into that space where you're like i know what this is going to be this reminds me of fill in the blank the crucible you know whatever it might be <laughs> and then the ending is meant to be something new and different um so in the case of the crucible you know all those people died which is what happened in the original in the in reality in salem and in the case of our show, there's an opportunity to say, hey, what if, what if that's not what happens here? Right. You know, I would never go back to, you know, I would never set an episode in Salem and say that those people didn't die because that would be mm-hmm. horrifically disrespectful mm-hmm. to what actually happened. But here's an opportunity to set an episode Salem adjacent and say, hey, here's what could happen if people set their fear aside and learn to communicate a little bit better. And again, I think that's sort of speaks to the relentless optimism of the show. And um, at the end of the day, that's kind of what I'm here for. I'm here for the, you know, relentlessly optimistic storytelling and the sprinkles, <laughs> sprinkles mm. and fiction. It's good. I think uh, speaking for the fans, we are as well. So yeah. um, it's uh, it's really good to know. Uh, and and it, in fact, it's been a, a great uh, 45 minutes talking to you uh, to, to get a, a view into your your perspective on Quantum Leap and what we can hopefully expect from you in future. Well, it means, it, honestly, it, it means a lot to, to hear from, you know, from you guys and from just viewers of the show, from fans, because it's people don't understand how collaborative television mm-hmm. is. And from you know the writer to the director to the editing to the dp to the you know visual effects all of that sure that's a part of it but i think also the viewers are kind of a part of the collaboration of what it is Mm -hmm. to create an episode of television or create a show and the reaction and the sort of um symbiosis of of that is Mm -hmm. so important because otherwise we're just kind of screaming into the ether right and if the fans aren't watching or don't like it, um, you know, it's sort of like, what's the point? I mean, you have to always have a, a healthy sense of like, I'm, you know, I would never suggest, Hey, you have to write to what people want and ignore your own truth. Never. You should always, you know, be writing the authentic truth of, of what you want to write. But, you know, it's, of course, it's, it's important to, to know that things are resonating with, with our viewers and it's kind of like standing on a cliff and yelling out, you know, into the abyss. And then, you know, you're like, here are my thoughts and feelings. And you're kind of waiting. And then maybe from the depths, you hear a small voice that goes, I have those thoughts and feelings too. That's, uh, it resonated and, and it, it means something, you know, it's a, it becomes this, this thing that's sort of bigger than, all of us, not to get not to get philosophical on the Quantum Leap podcast, it does become you know bigger than all of us in in a certain sense. I think that's just kind of how um, you know all of art is. Um, not to say high art, not to say that we're making high art, but um, maybe a little bit sometimes. <laughs> we're trying certainly right. to make good art. You know, something that um, you know is is good to experience and um, that people really love and. Uh, that makes you feel, you know, c- cozy when you're watching it sometimes and thoughtful mm-hmm. and um, emotional in a good way. And again, optimistic. 
I think it's absolutely fine to get philosophical. You're speaking to a couple of guys that um, will gladly speak and record for hours every week <laughs> about this show and its predecessor. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a show that's worth investing uh, time and emotion into. Um, it, you, you mentioned about the, the fan reaction. I, I think this one's going to go down really well. I can't wait to see social media over the next 24, 48 hours and see what the reaction is. Um, we really enjoyed it, and we've had such a good time talking to you. Uh, Margarita, thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, a genuine pleasure, and uh, can't wait to hear what everyone thinks. So how cool is Margarita? I mean, hey, guys. So, uh, oh, I'm so <laughs> glad. I'm so glad we got to speak to her at last. Um, she was just I, so uh, smart and nerdy. Um, yeah. It just made us such a... It's, it's, it's always interesting speaking to people on Quantum Leap, but sometimes you speak to someone that you just think, <laughs> I just want to go out for, for some drinks with you and just nerd out for several hours. Not even about Quantum Leap. Let's just let's talk Blade Runner. It's it's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Margarita, if you are listening, smart and nerdy is like one of the highest compliments we can give. So imagine oh, yes, that in the yeah. best of... <laughs> Absolutely. No, that, that was great. But hopefully listeners know what, I'm, know what I meant now at the top of the interview about uh, just if, if anything's slip through if if you were thinking why didn't they ask about that well it, because there was just so much to talk about yeah, but yeah, yeah I, th I think that that was a lot of fun and hopefully we can have her on again next time she's she's got an episode up yeah yeah so i mean this is going to be uh hopefully the start of a long friendship and uh i can't wait to pick her brain about many things quantum lore related not just uh episode specific but her bigger ideas for all the geeky yeah. stuff that we love to dig yeah. into. So thanks again, Margarita, for bringing that aspect to it. And uh, Margarita's not the only one we spoke to. As we mentioned earlier in the show, we also spoke to Amanda Jaros. She played the other person accused of witchcraft, Morgan McKenna, the one with the Irish brogue. How's my Irish mm. brogue? That was very <laughs> good, very, Chris. Well done. Very, oh, thank very you. Good thank you. You're very, very kind. With, with apologies to our Irish listeners. <laughs> and apologies to all of the listeners. I'm going to spare you any more pain. Here is our interview with Amanda Jaros. Hello, Leapers, and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. We are so fortunate today to be talking with Amanda Jaros, and you might know her from A Kind of Magic. Is that is that the episode title? I think so. Yes, yeah. that's the episode title. <laughs> It's it's been like two weeks since I watched it uh, the first time, so I watched it three times. Very good episode, and uh, I I love the character you play. Uh, I want to talk about that, but before we talk about that, I want to talk about you. Uh, when did you first uh, get the acting bug and want to start uh, being a superstar? Oh my goodness, I don't even know if I want to be a superstar. <laughs> um, I. Let's see. I first started getting the acting bug when I was really little. Um, I would be in school plays. I would um, write and perform plays and make my cousins perform them on family <laughs> vacations. Um, I wanted to be a veterinarian and or a zoologist because I love animals. And by the time biology and chemistry rolled around and I, I realized it was definitely not a strength of mine, uh, my dad had actually said, well, you know, have you ever thought about being an actor? And um, which is pretty rare for, for most creatives to be able to say, oh, yeah, my 
my dad suggested it. And I knew as soon as he had mentioned that as an option, I was like, oh, that's definitely what I'm supposed to do. I just thought it was something fun to do as a kid. I didn't realize it could be a job. So, um, so that, that forever changed my trajectory, but, um, I had always been performing ever since I was little. That's awesome. Um, so how did you uh, get into it professionally? Like what, 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 how did, what was that like? Oh gosh. Okay. Um, let's see. My first union job was on criminal minds. Um, I had done some short films and, you know, non-union things. You tried to just have experience on set. Um, but criminal minds was, um, you know, that first show where, you realize you're on a big budget and it's a network television show and you're working with a lot of professionals. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, it was the job that happened to Taft Hartley me, which means you go from being non-union to union and it kind of changes the caliber of work that you end up doing. And I just had a heart for, for network television, um, since then. So it was a great experience. So I, I see that you, you've done some TV work. How did you parlay that into the role that we saw you in on Quantum Leap? Yeah, the creative process is similar for most of my acting roles. Um, when I examine any type of character, I like to do script analysis because I also have a background in screenwriting. So I will give all of the pages that they provide um, a read through and figure out that character's background and story and what's their motive. What do they, what's their objective? What do they really want from each scene or from the arc of the overall story? And what are their relationships like? How do they feel about those people or possessions, you know, et cetera. So I go from, from that place to start. And then, uh, you know, if there's additional things like, accents, I'll uh, practice, you know, pull one out of the hat. I, most of my work is accent work, which is so interesting. Uh, I had a friend of mine say, you know, on your, on your reel, you have a different accent for every single role, <laughs> which is pretty true. <laughs> um, but I love it. So, you know, that makes it more fun for me. Um, another, another thing to, to practice and to develop um, as an artist. So, so yeah, that's the the approach I take with almost all of my characters. I, I have to say, your your accent work is amazing. We were convinced for a couple of weeks that you were actually Irish, and then uh, we started oh, <laughs> we started researching you, and then we saw your demo reel with another different accent. I was like, hey, and then we started looking, and then like, oh, born in the United States. Wow, she's really good at this. Oh, I'm glad I convinced you guys. That's so sweet. That's such a great compliment for an actor that um, really has a heart for accents and dialects. So I appreciate the compliment. Thank you. Well, if I can follow up a little bit on how you were describing your process about getting to know the character and finding out what the character wants, this was a very different episode of Quantum because it's as far back as the show has ever leapt. And mm -hmm. we spoke to the writer, Margarita Matthews, who um, was telling us about the research that she put into creating the story, crafting the story to do the homage and to actually treat the, the era with the respect it's due because of everything that happened in Salem. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if um, because of that historical bent, did you do any extra research in figuring out your character, mannerisms, things like that? First of all, I love Margarita. Uh, her work was stellar. She was such a pleasure to work with. And unfortunately, during filming, she actually had to uh, 
bow out a little early due to the strikes. So we had her for when we started filming and then we, we had to say, we'll, we'll support your script from here, from here <laughs> while she went to the picket line. So um, it's great. You guys got to talk to her. Yeah. Um, but yes. So, um, so what I like to do is I will actually research the time period and the location um, that my characters live in. And so this, I was a bit more familiar with because of plays like the crucible um, that I grew up reading and watching, but you don't just want to take, you know, someone else's creative liberty and have that solely impact your performance. So I just knew of that time period and, and what people were struggling with at that time. But then you end up doing historical research, um, which is a delight of mine. So yes, I, I did additional research as well. Were there things that you found in the research that uh, directly informed the character? Anything that you can point to? Gotcha. So there wasn't one thing that I can recall that informed my character. However, I do remember something that made a greater impact was amidst my research, I ended up doing more of a deep dive on psychology, which is another thing I love to study, and the effects of a, of a mob mentality and how difficult it is for someone to go against the grain, which is essentially what my character does. So that's something that stuck out to me um, versus more of any of the historical facts that I had already been somewhat informed of. Gotcha. That was uh, one thing about your character in this episode that I really enjoyed. You, you seem to uh, have a good sense of agency and uh, like power for a woman back then, which was unusual, especially in that type of town in that era. And um, I was wondering uh, the backstory for your character to me, like the first time I watched it, I was thinking, well, maybe she is a witch. Maybe she is Wiccan. Then another time I was like, maybe she's just a scientist. Like uh, what, what is your backstory for the character? Yeah. So it is what uh, is presented. So she actually owns an apothecary shop and she is an herbalist. She is someone that appreciates using nature uh, to be able to heal people, to be able to bring peace to people, whether with certain teas, flowers, etc. So it's interesting that she's so holistic, which I feel like is very popular now. Mm. <laughs> but back in that time period, you know, if you combine the right things, oh, you're a witch, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so yes, it is. She doesn't uh, have any ounce of witchcraft in her it is um just you know these false accusations that she has to navigate through which she does do with some uh robust reactions so, <laughs> um i liked her sassiness i think um when the character was presented to me they said uh someone who is let's see uh some type of, I don't know if they use the word sassy, but Juliet Lewis, like, tells it like it is. And I just knew that this character was going to be fun. So, <laughs> and she was, she certainly was. So. Awesome. We already, like we mentioned, we spoke with Margarita and I also spoke with Jet. Uh, she played one of the mean girls. Yeah, uh, yeah. And she was uh, telling us that um, things might have had to change a little bit due to illnesses on the set and like ch changing of schedules. Do you, do you want to mm -hmm. talk about that at all? Oh, sure. Hilarious. <laughs> so, um, so let's see, we were, I don't know, we were a weekend, less than a weekend, somewhere around there. 
and um, there were a couple of positive COVID cases. And I don't recall having any interaction with any of those positive COVID cases. But NBC is great in so much as, you know, they're following union guidelines. They're following, you know, they don't want more people to get sick. So I appreciate any type of COVID protections that are put in place. Um, I did test positive. I didn't have any symptoms, which was a godsend. Um, Some people, once I came back from uh, having to quarantine, they were like, was it a false positive? Which we don't know. Um, because I did end up having, um, a false positive test, um, when I got back so that I had a positive, but then immediately a negative. So there was some confusion there, but I did the right quarantine and all of that. Um, and no one that interacted with me ended up getting it. So whether I had it or not, we don't know, but, um, it's always better safe than sorry. And so, uh, so I appreciate everyone that worked, um, so diligently around that chaos because the last thing you expect is one of your guest stars to (laughs) get a positive COVID test and you have to work around that. So did they uh, change the scheduling of the filming days for certain scenes or something? How did that work? Yes. So thank God for my stand in. I don't, I don't remember her name, but um, she ended up filling in for me the day that I had to leave because we were already there, you know, on set, ready to go. I was in costume. And then, you know, the COVID team comes running up to me being like, you have to leave. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh. So so, uh, my wonderful stand-in filled in for me for a day or two. And then they did um, reschedule a majority of my work. So that happened after I completed my, I think it was five-day quarantine. I don't remember what the stipulation was. Uh, So the only bummer was I missed some of the movie lot days, which are so fun when you're filming at a a ranch uh, that has this magical ghost town feel. But I also love filming at the Universal lot. And so we ended up picking up some shots there to be able to fill in the gaps, which was really fun. And um, Avi, our director... As, as trams were going by, because, you know, we love, we love the fans. Like, thank you for watching the show. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, and as people were, uh, on tours at Universal on these trams, you know, we wave and we, you know, wait to film and Avi, our director (laughs) ended up being like, you know, come with me, come with me. And as one is passing, he was, he was like, brave. Disney's Brave 2025. <laughs> <laughs> because I look like the Brave character. My hair was really curly. And I was, you know, in, in period garb and all these things. So um, it was just so, so funny. But uh, I had a great time there, too. So it was really taking a, a bad situation and turning it into something great. And Avi was amazing working around scheduling and how to creatively fill in the gaps to make Mm. everything look consistent. So everyone came together. And that's the beautiful thing about people, um, especially in this age of artificial intelligence, when, when people can creatively work out a solution together and have fun doing it and make magic happen. That's just amazing. 
Yeah, that's got to be an actor's uh, biggest biggest nightmare. Like you're on on the set of a major TV show, and they say, "Oh, excuse me, yes, you, you, no, you have to leave." <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you got to go. <laughs> I was so sad, guys, and not just not just for me because I love performing, obviously, but also realizing the impact that that has on the rest of the casting crew, and. You know, it was just it was just a bummer. Uh, but again, better safe than sorry. I sure. didn't want anyone to get sick, and no one did, mm-hmm. uh, at least for me. So, um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it it all worked out um, yeah. for better or for worse. Yeah. Well, aside from those hiccups, can you tell us what it was like to go to that set and sort of immerse yourself in that time period? Because um, on screen, it looks phenomenal. You really looked like you're back there. So, I'm curious to know about like the shooting and, and that experience. Yeah did feel like we were in 1692 when I came out in hair and makeup and got to step onto the set. Um, we had filmed in the Santa Clarita area and it just honestly felt magical. And I'm not saying that as a pun of our name or theme, but it really did feel magical. And there was this sort of whimsy to this town that had been built to look like we're in that time period. And for me and my creative process, I really wanted to be in the apothecary. I wanted to see, you know, what she was working on, what props were given, um, what what set decoration. And uh, so, again, the, the set dressers and production designers did a wonderful job. And I really got to feel like I was there because of their work. And that's always helpful for an actor to experience that's that's great because i think on screen the only time we see the apothecary is after it's been ransacked by the townspeople so they actually had it set up for you just for your background and mm-hmm. i guess i guess it was intact at that point it, it was yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Wow. so our first few scenes because i actually have to watch through the window i'm mm-hmm. not sure um which edit you guys saw but I'm watching through the window and then I come out to end up talking to the crowd. Yeah. And so everything's in order and then they change it all up after it's ransacked. And, um, you know, that's, that's why those craftsmen are there to be able to, um, show both sides of the illusion. And, um, they did a great job. Yeah. On the day that it rained, uh, what was that like? Oh, (laughs) Well, I wish you could. I could tell you because that was my day off. Oh, was it? Okay. <laughs> I came back and they were like, "It rained." And <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's cool. I had a question. It's it's an it's an old western set. You said out in uh, San Clarita. I think that's where it was. Somewhere somewhere in that area. Yeah. Is it like going on location or is are there buildings just like off camera that it's like a studio to where you can go and, you know, have lunch and relax in the air conditioning and stuff? Um, there was both. So um, we did have our trailers. Like, obviously, there was a base camp. Um, there were, I think, I don't know how many functional buildings, but where we filmed uh, were more or less sets that were built that I think stay there for the longevity of that property ownership. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, they, they definitely, it, it felt like a Western town and I've, I've been on Westerns before. It felt like a Western town, but how they were able to do 
costumes and set design really made it feel more like, you know, colonial Massachusetts in the 1600s. You wouldn't feel necessarily like you were filming in California. I know that you got to do a lot of scenes because you're featured heavily in the episode. Uh, is there any scene in particular that stood out as your favorite? And uh, second part to that question, was there any moment on the set that, that was unexpected that surprised you? Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, I remember what surprised me. The night we had to um, film our escape, there it was very cold and uh, and very windy. And I just remember, and I say very cold because I have thin blood now, but I know everyone was cold. And when we and when we would come around the corner, the wind would hit us, and we were <laughs> we were. <laughs> I don't know, snowmen, it felt like, but um, it was, that was definitely a surprising moment. Um, uh, my favorite scenes, hmm, probably, probably one of the scenes when we were uh, jailed together. And there just comes, you know, some beauty in when people, not, not even just actors, but when people can have real, vulnerable, authentic conversations. And for, you know, my character, as a, uh, Morgan, has a bit of a tough skin on her. And she's finally starting to be vulnerable. And uh, you have, you know, Ben, who has to kind of hide who he is. But, you know, he's really having empathy and you have Goody, who's obviously struggling. So just for these characters to really just let their guards down, of all places in jail where they're guarded. <laughs> uh, I really just loved the vulnerability of those scenes. Mm. Was the jail a soundstage, like a built set? It was. That was, yeah, that was on the lot, on the Universal lot. That's awesome. Uh, it looked really good. Um how long were you in jail? <laughs> How long was I in jail? Yeah, like um, the filming day. Let's see. I think that there were quite a few days. I'm, I don't know if it was two or three, but it was definitely more than one, I think. <laughs> I think. <laughs> but also that they may have been, that also may have been one of the things that had to be rescheduled or worked around. I'm forgetting it felt like we were walking into a cave and eventually at some point I remember the cave, I was like, okay, we're going to the cave and the cave is our friend. Like <laughs> I was just walking in with that mentality because there's no, there's no sunlight. There's no, you know, you're in a soundstage and then you're in it like dome in a soundstage. <laughs> so, um, this uh, episode seemed to have a large guest cast and a lot of townspeople also, like background actors. What was that like with so many people? Uh, you know, because a lot of these episodes, there's only a few people in each scene or something, but it seemed like the whole town was involved with most of the episode. So, what was just the feeling of the set with all those people and the organization and the worries of, you know, the writer strike and the impending uh, actor strike? And COVID, all that going on, <laughs> and still making an amazing episode in the end. It's incredible that we were able to finish filming. <laughs> uh, it was amazing having so many people on set, right? That really, 
helps the story come alive. And I'm always so appreciative of extras and the work that they put in because without them, things would just seem so much more empty and or artificial. And so, um, so thank you to the extras that were working on set. Um, and there was uh, a recurring joke among some of the cast and crew of like, we don't know if we'll be working tomorrow. And you just never know with these things, right? And I know that everyone was supportive of writers going on strike and everyone is supportive of actors going on strike and we're appreciative of IATSE and Teamsters who were unfortunately very negatively impacted by both strikes and yet still supported us in in those plights um, for stronger negotiations. And so, um, so again, thank you to just all of all each union <laughs> that collaboratively works in TV and film. But yeah, we never knew uh, if our production would keep going or not. And that's because we didn't know uh, how soon the SAG after strikes would come because obviously we had this script uh, already ready to go. So we were going to shoot the script, but if the actors were to have had their strike happen any earlier, then all of production would cease. So essentially it was just kind of waiting on a breath. And fortunately we were able to complete our filming which was definitely, I consider a blessing um, to people who want to work because we want to work. We love what we do. So, um, so yeah, that was uh, definitely a, a trepidatious factor, but it ended up working out. Uh, when you all wrapped, was it like a sense of relief? Like we, we accomplished it. We did it actually. Yes. And I, I think because of my quarantine, I think I was, I had to do some pickup shots after everyone else had wrapped, if I remember correctly. So we had this big courtroom scene and everyone, all the hugs and all the photos and all that, you know, and it was so great because everyone realizes, you know, you're doing this thing together. And then, you know, it's kind of, uh, if I, if I remember correctly, it was like, Avi and I were like, okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so I had a double wrap, um, <laughs> the, the big group cast wrap, and then these other insert shots that we had to do. Mm -hmm. So a bonus for me, because when you wrap, it's always fun. And, you know, yeah. everyone, everyone applauds <laughs> and hugs. And it's always like, you know, you're saying bye to family. So it's always fun. And sad because it's bittersweet, right? You don't mm. you don't want to wrap, but you're so grateful for the opportunity you've had. Was this the last project that you were able to do before you had to go on strike? Yes. Yeah. So acting wise, yes. Um, and now things are just, you know, picking back up within the last month or so the strike's been suspended. So we'll, we'll see what's going to come down the pipeline. Uh, I know that there's, more writing for me right now, um, now that that's been resolved. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what's next. But this was the last thing I filmed before the actors went on strike. 
Hmm. And uh, you being a writer, uh, are you, were you part of the Writers Guild and all that? And But you could still uh, perform because you were acting, right? So for writers in the WGA, obviously, once the writers strike was underway, you can no longer put any pen to paper or type anything out for the AMPTP. And so anything that already had a contract underway or a final script, you're able to shoot that. And that's how with Margarita's wonderful script, we were able to film because she had already done this amazing job and completed her work for that episode. And we could just roll with it. Obviously, once the actors had their strike, we could no longer perform on AMPTP productions. But as a SAG-AFTRA actor working on a WGA script, I could still perform on that script because it had already been completed. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. <laughs> I followed you. I followed you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Because we wonder about this people things. to death with that description. <laughs> well, well, being a writer and a director yourself, uh, when you're on a set, are, are, are you just like constantly learning uh, like different things maybe for – for you to do in the future for your writing or directing. I, I noticed you wrote Tom and Jerry, right? How cool is that? I think we all watched that as a kid and loved that. Yeah, I was, I was uh, one of their writers uh, for the Tom and Jerry show reboot and then uh, yeah. Tom and Jerry in New York. Mm-hmm. It's funny how that fell into my lap a little bit. And um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity, but I also didn't really have a passion for animation writing. Mm. I actually prefer narrative live action films and television. And so it was just a great learning experience to see how different animation writing is. The format's different. The writing room is different. um, Or I should say the lack of writing room. (laughs) (laughs) And the unions are different. Actually, animation writing uh, is currently under the Animation Guild instead of the WGA, which is also interesting. And so, yeah, it was just a learning experience. And per your question of how I observe other occupations in my line of work, yeah, everything, every human experience, you can learn something. And I think I'd have to probably be like a clinical narcissist not to be like, I'm not going to learn from that person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I already know everything. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I know. I fully embrace. I don't know everything. And there are people with great expertise um, that I've had the pleasure of, of working with. And um, I, you know, I love learning from people and their vision for their own occupation. And so we'll see if I end up doing more directing as well. I don't know. Um, but right now, a majority of my time is, is acting and writing. And those are quite fulfilling. It sounds like you had fun filming the episode. Uh, what's your, what's your biggest takeaway from, uh, your time on Quantum Leap? It's always a delight working with people who love what they do. And everyone was so welcoming because when you're a guest star, you know, you're stepping into another show where people have kind of a rhythm and, you know, they see each other every day for months at a time. And, you know, sometimes it's hit or miss whether you feel like you'll be able to be included in that kind of family vibe or not. Um, And you just take whatever the circumstances are um, with stride. But this show was just so welcoming, so kind. And everyone was just, you know, uh, even amidst all the chaos and all the crazy factors that happened, 
everyone made it work and it was just such a positive experience. Uh, do you have any upcoming, I know there was a strike, so probably not, but are you currently working on anything or upcoming stuff that we should be, uh, on the lookout for? Well, uh, let me figure out how much I can say. Uh, I am currently in development on a couple of indie feature films and on a new TV show. We are going to see how it goes um, because there's a lot of meetings involved and um, different networks and figuring out what's the best fit and contracts. So I'm in the middle of um, going through that stage with, with more of my scripts, but I will say on each of the scripts I've written, there's normally um, a character that I like to play um, isn't always the lead. Sometimes supporting characters are more fun for me and, and sometimes the leads are. So we'll just see which of these three projects will um we'll we'll see which one takes off soon enough so we can um rest assured we'll see you somewhere in the near future yes. So oh yes yeah, yeah that's yeah. good you news for quantum yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> are there are there any other um tales from the set that we haven't touched upon aspects of your of your filming that you'd like to relate and uh or any messages for the leapers out there that are listening Well, I think I would just love to end by saying thank you to all of these leapers for all of your support. And, you know, obviously any job in entertainment can't succeed without its fans. And so we really appreciate your support and views and listens and um, all the things. So thank you. Thank you to you guys. And um, thank you to the fans. Amanda Jaros, thank you so much for being on the Quantum Leap podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So listen, you thought you were cool for speaking with Margarita. I'm doubly cool because I got to speak with Margarita and Amanda and Albie. So maybe I'm triply cool. Triply cool, Chris. I haven't spoken to Albie this week. How's Albie doing? (laughs) (laughs) Albie's, you know, hey, we're both doing great now that we got to speak to Amanda. So wasn't that interview great? She was so terrific. Great interview. Yeah, so, so much going on there. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Amanda, for that insight into how you approach the character. And uh, for the time that you took to speak with us, we are a better podcast for it. Unfortunately, uh, this is the part where I usually go to Patreon news and feedback. We have no news to share on either front. We haven't heard from listeners. I guess everybody's busy. It's the holidays. and you know. Yeah. But don't despair. We do have something to share with the listeners. I think we've told you guys about this before, but we just want to make sure that the word gets out there on February. February 3rd, Scott Bakula is doing a fan Q&A live and in person in between performances of his new Broadway show, The Connector, which is playing at the MCC Theater in New York City. The tickets for all performances are now available to the public, so you can go to the MCC Theater website and figure out which show you want to see Scott at, and they will offer discounts to anyone who says they are a fan of his. All you need to use is the promo code Bacula, and you can tell them the Quantum Leap podcast sent you too. I don't know if it'll make a difference, but using that promo code Bacula will give you a discount on your seats. And the February 3rd show that I mentioned is the Q&A show. So if you have a ticket, you can attend that Q&A. Just make sure there are seats available. I'm not sure. Last time I looked, they were they were 
pretty much taken up, but there might be some still left. Again, that is at the MCC Theater in New York City, and I will be at that Q&A. So if you are a QLP fan, reach out to me, and I will buy you a cup of coffee. Oh, another good reason to go. Maybe hot chocolate, maybe even a street hot dog. It depends on how we're feeling <gasps> that night. So. <laughs> I need to get myself over there. This sounds like too good an opportunity to miss. Spacula schmacula, the hot dog with, with Chris. That's that's what it's all about. <laughs> hot dogs with Chris. That's the new stretch goal on Patreon. Anyway, <laughs> if you out there would like to tell us what you think about this episode of Quantum Leap or the idea of sharing a hot dog with me on the mean streets of Manhattan, there are many mm. ways that you can reach us here at the Quantum Leap podcast. You can send us a letter at P.O. Box 542. Bayport, New York, 11705. You can get us on the phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can hit us up on Instagram at quantumleappodcast or X us at Quantum Leap Pod, and you can also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash the Quantum Leap Podcast. That's where you're also going to see the video versions of our interviews with Margarita and with Amanda, and also the exclusive interviews with Jet and with Madeline, who also played in this episode. Go over there. My God, there's so much going on. YouTube.com slash the Quantum Leap Podcast. And you can always go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. Just remember that we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, tell us what's next. Well, don't cry too much. It's the mid-season finale. This is the... uh the break before the holidays, although it could have been worse. This could have been the season finale had the, the strike run on longer. So I'm, I'm seeing that as a positive. There's more to come. Next week's episode is Nomads. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. When Ben leaps as far as Egypt into an undercover CIA agent caught in a dangerous game of international espionage, he must move quickly to save a woman's life. Mm. Egypt. So exciting. And and not Egypt on like a green screen, like real Egypt, (laughs) actual Egypt. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh. It's amazing. So cool. Well, we got a little a little taste of it from what Caitlin told us about in her interview. And uh, we're definitely, definitely looking forward to seeing this one. It seems like a big, bold leap to end the, I guess, this this part of the season on anyway. Thank goodness it's not the season finale and just yeah. the, uh, the hiatus before uh, we get the back five. So I'm looking so forward to watching this episode. I'm stoked. Yeah, I am really stoked as well, and uh, I'm stoked to be talking with you about it, as always. Until that time, I have been Christopher D. Philippus. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you on the Giza Plateau. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash Podcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher D. Philippus and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. 
Special thanks to our producers, Harold Sullivan, Glenda Palma, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Jeff Kiska, Craig Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. The power of Ian compels you.